Like, I know a lot of people who get into a game early, especially a game that has such a competitive kind of environment. I don't like the word meta because I think it takes the face off the community. That's good. I, yeah. I mean, like, like if you're from if you're from, you know, Baton Rouge or whatever, that's your community. That's not your meta. It's not the way that, that you know, the game is played. That's your friends. That's the right. people you play the game with. They all I have like a that. certain way of playing, but that's your community. That's yeah. how they play. And I really wish people would replace meta with community, but whatever. That's a whole different conversation. Boy, do I love talking to somebody who loves games. And Will Schoonover not only loves games, but he helps make them. Will and I talk about his time at Privateer Press, his work on Monster Apocalypse. But moreover, we just talk about games. What goes into making them? what his approach is when given a new project, and how he measures success. Now, since we've recorded this interview, uh, Will has changed over and gone back to Steve Jackson Games, and he's taken over Munchkin. Anyway, sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Will. Third Floor Wars delivers interviews, insights, and discussions about everything hitting the tabletop. Rule books, plastic models, dice, and cards in hand. Let the gaming begin. Tabletop games let you escape and unleash grand battles and regale epic tales of adventure with your friends. If you love gaming and learning from players, designers, experts, and creators, you are in the right place. Pull up a chair. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk Podcast. Craig here on the third floor. Today we're talking to Will Schoonover, probably best known for his work with Steve Jackson Games as well as Privateer Press. Um, it's funny when uh, I it was actually a patron that uh, said, "Hey, have you talked to Will yet?" And I said, "No, but I but I can find him." So I tracked Will down, and um, this has happened to me more and more where I knew Will from a part of Will's career, but then you start doing a little bit of research and you just realize how many different things that he's touched. And we're going to cover that today. So first off, Will, welcome to the third floor. Hi. And I have had my fingers in a lot of <laughs> yeah. a lot of stuff over the last 15 years. You really, really have. But before we get into all that juicy stuff, you have to go through the gauntlet that all my poor guests have to go yeah. through, which is you have to take me back in time to the day you discovered that you could roll dice, push models and pretend to be other people. Well, that's that's a long story. We could have an entire episode on that by itself um i'm 45 about to turn 46 and i don't have a memory where i didn't know how to play chess no kidding so i have a pretty good memory i have some memories some solid memories from like being three years old and stuff and i may remember barely my mom teaching me chess but i don't think i do i think i remember playing chess so like i started out super early my mom's a very old school gamer and not like old school, like seventies, like old school, like fifties. When my family gets together, they play a lot of card games, like a bunch of traditional, like they play this thing they call Shanghai. They play hand and foot. Uh, we played a ton of Farkle as kids. Oh, Just yeah. Anytime we were together and there were dice, we would play Farkle. So like I grew up playing all kinds of games, but playing very standard things that, you know, people have played for hundreds of years or whatever. But the concept of gaming, it sounds like it was it was bred into you. So, the con yeah, the concept of gaming was was just there. Um, a cousin of mine that's about my age had a, a risk copy when we were kids and we would have epic 
Saturday, <laughs> he would stay Friday night and we would play Risk for like six or eight hours, basically until my little brother gave up because he was losing. Um, <laughs> that was me and my mom and my cousin and my brother. And so like I grew up playing games pretty often. And my cousin and I even kind of accidentally invented a game in a weird little like little kid way. Um, I got the A-Team train set in like 1986 or something, and it had all these little blue army men in it. And they were like six mil, maybe that <laughs> right. scale, maybe even smaller. And they were all blue plastic. And my mom had found this old um, board game board from like a Hex Encounter, you know, old 70s war game, which I didn't know existed. I knew nothing about, you know, advanced squad leader and that kind of stuff. Because right. I, I grew up in a really small town in the middle of nowhere, Missouri, and we didn't have a comic book shop or anything like that. We had a couple of comic books in the grocery store on the magazine rack. And that was the closest thing I had to any kind of nerd culture where I was growing up. But I got this this board and it turned out I found this game later in my life. And it's for a game called Combat 2, I think. Um, and it was just a little board of, a, of an island with cities and roads and stuff on it. And the squares were as big as the bases on those A-team train set army men. Perfect. And I had some testers paint from trying to be a model kid when I was little and so my cousin and I, over the course of like a couple of summer weeks, painted half the guys red with te- glopped on testers paint. Sure. And then we we played this game that was kind of risk inspired. It had a roll to move system and it had like risk off risk dice off combat and guys would just walk up to each other and one of them would win. And we had an epic, exciting time not knowing what we were really doing. And I didn't touch game design until my my mid 20s. After that, isn't it funny, though, like you tell me that story and I bet you there's a lot of listeners that are thinking this, too. Like, I remember being young and finding maps like that, whether it be a board map or a map in a book or whatever. But there was something about maps that just ignited my brain. Like, I'll never forget opening up Tolkien the first time and seeing that map and like, I don't care what this book is about, but I'm going to read the shit out of this book Mm -hmm. because just the map was so inspiring. So you're telling me that story of finding a hex map and it's got different areas and islands and stuff like that. Like my my, all my synapses of seven year old Craig just go off. Yeah, I want to remake that game. Um, If you know anything about my releases, I made a game called Level, Level 7 Invasion a few years ago, and it's got a whole bunch of little color army men in it. It's got like 12 per color and there's six colors or five colors. Um, And I found a different set of old Hex Encounter war game maps a couple years ago. And I just want to kind of just like sit around some some like snowed in weekend. I didn't do it recently, uh, unfortunately, and just make up a new dumb little kid version of that game and actually put thought into it and see if I can make (laughs) a real game out of it. Well, and you could do the uh, the Gaslands route, which is just put out the book and just oh, yeah. say, hey, you know, go find whatever miniatures you want, whatever maps you want, and then you can go for it. So you, you played around that with as a, as a kid and, you know, you're goofing around with risk and things like that. As you look back, Will, when was kind of the first time that you graduated a little bit, right? So you you started actually touching some deeper games. So I should have had a ton of D&D experience, but... Knowing my age and where I'm from, the satanic panic was a really big deal in my life. Like I had to stop celebrating Halloween as a kid because my parents were really religious. No kidding. And like my my mom, when I was in like fourth grade or fifth grade or whatever, just decided we weren't doing Halloween anymore because that was the devil stuff. So like I I missed out on on 20 years of D&D. Yeah, because we're the same age. And that's I mean, we we, we were the, the heyday, right? Yeah, like when when I met. Um, other kids in high school 
uh, we started messing around with D and D, but I didn't have any of that. Like, you know, kid, little kid experience in the, story. In the yeah. early eighties of D and D. Yeah. It wasn't until I don't even know, probably 90 or something. Yeah. Um, I've been playing with toy soldiers my whole life too, like GI Joe and little plastic army men and all that kind of stuff. And my cousin and I would always have arguments over gun ranges and accuracies. So we should have been rolling <laughs> that, that dice. prepared you for modern the table whole time. time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but my brother, who's a little bit younger than me, uh, had a friend group. And one of those kids had a brother who was older than me. And he introduced those kids to 40 K. Interesting. And so at one point I came over to my house and we had a big basement that was unfinished. So it was just our playground of like piles of junk. And my brother and this other friend of his were pushing around space Marines on this sand. I'd already built a table covered in sand for like GI Joe, like posing and stuff. Um, and they were pushing, they, they, they had 20 of the old original plastic Behe space Marine box. And they were playing a 10 on 10 fight where this other kid was explaining rules. Um, and I'm not going to call him out by name, but he knows who he is, but he was only introducing rules when they were in his favor. Oh, sure. So <laughs> we've all so played like, against him. That, yeah. That's <laughs> the perfect experience. The perfect intro into this kind of thing. And I sat down and just watched them push tiny army men around a table and have rules that I didn't know yet. And we, they were playing with the rogue trader book at that point and they were rolling dice. And then I realized, Hey, there's a hobby lobby nearby there's some others i mean these were were all things that were in the city in air quotes because we lived about about 45 minutes north of kansas city so we were out in the middle of nowhere and my parents wouldn't take us to places necessarily that were cool when we went into the city we would go to walmart or you know someplace like that so um that was right around the time that i was also driving age so like one of those one of those trips we convinced my mom to take us to a hobby town or something like that. And I saw like a rack of GW minis for the first time in my entire life. And then right after I started driving, so like 1992, 91, whatever, um, we, my brother and I pulled some, some scrounged up cash because we didn't have allowances or anything. We just had whatever we could beg for. And we bought some Imperial guard. And then like, that was it. I was, I was in. Yeah. Yeah. Now you said now, uh, that's the introduction there, but you, as you also mentioned, actually finally getting exposed and playing RPGs. So did you, did you touch RPGs, but mostly was minis or did you do kind of do both? Or So I, I, I've always been so attached to army men, little guys, yeah. um, that that was where I wanted like to spend most of my time and never being exposed to RPGs. Like I sat next to one of the other RPG kids in a seventh grade class and he showed me a D and D book. And I thought it was awesome, but I didn't, I didn't actually touch it or anything. And when we would go into the mall bookstore, when my parents weren't paying attention, I would look at the D and D book covers, but I never, I don't think I ever opened any of them because I didn't want to get caught looking at D and D books. Sure. Um, So, so it wasn't until like some of my friends were just bored in like our senior year of high school that I finally convinced them they should, they should let me play D and D with them. And it was a terrible experience. It was a, it was a train wreck of an experience. It was maybe advanced D and D. I don't remember exactly. Cause it was like 93, 94, something like that. And it was, it was none of the things I always imagined. Right. And just, just a disappointment. So I was yeah. like, well, okay. D and D is not so great. 
Like yep. I didn't know anybody who, who, who really was into it heavy and I liked 40 K and stuff. Yep. So I was like, well, fine, I'll just keep playing this. My brother and his friends played a little bit of um, Warhammer RPG back then. Um, and I looked through that book and I was like, this is silly and I don't care. It's I want to play with space. <laughs> but so yeah, you, it, you were neck deep then in, in GW, right? You get hooked yeah. there. That's your first exposure. Um, you play that. What was your first um, non GW exposure? When did you f- stray? So I strayed at about the same time that other people my age strayed. Um, I've had a lot of experiences with post GW people. Um, whether they stayed away or went back like I eventually did. Yeah. Um, and working for Privateer, I've had people um, unburden their souls to me about their, I'm you know, sure. their trauma from GW and stuff over the years. So I've heard a lot of stories about this. And it seems like right around 2000, 99, 2000, there was a group of us that were just the right age who had grown up on early, like pre pre-second edition all the weirdness that was pre-second edition i'm not even going to call it first edition because it wasn't a real edition it was a hodgepodge of rule books and you tried to had to find them all and maybe you had some white dwarf magazines that had some rules in them i didn't know if it was an rpg or a tabletop game it didn't know what the hell and we had a ton of fun playing it but we hardly we didn't use points because some of my friends had some models and some of my friends had other models and the second edition starter came out and everybody was excited and we were playing for real and like we found a game store that had tournaments and stuff and it was exciting, but it was an hour and some minutes away from my house. Yep. So like we, we were, we were deep in there, but then right around the time that the century changed games workshop, just flipped the switch on the 40 K edition. They went to third or, or, or fourth or whatever it was. I can't keep track anymore. Yeah. And it was suddenly a vastly different game. Mm-hmm. Um, I I had spent a year in New Mexico in another tiny town with no one to play games with. <laughs> I played Necromunda by myself off and on that year, uh, killing all my own gangers um, because dice. And I came back to the Kansas City area and I had my old 40K army, but the addition had changed. And uh, a guy running a shop on one of the local like, you know, Yahoo groups or whatever told me that he would show me 40K. And I went down there and played it. And I was like, this isn't even really 40K anymore. Like, yeah, there's no movement stats on models. People can see through allies. Like it was such a jarring difference that I was just like, well, they've been raising prices on me for years and all that kind of, you know, all those grumbles from that late, yeah. late 90s p- time period. So I was just like, I'll, I'm going to try something else. What is there? And I looked out into the vast nothingness of the tabletop space. And I said, well, uh, Heroclix exists. I I guess I'll play that. And so, like, I had seen other games in the stores. Like, I'd seen um, Chronotopia and uh, that other game with the weird demon robots and stuff well people 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 don't realize because they're not old like you and i are there there was nothing <laughs> there like, yes there was nothing yes and and now i mean you want to talk about being the heyday of tabletop gaming i don't care if you're playing rpgs or table or, or t- tabletop mini games war games it is it's un, it's you can't even compare it yeah um so yeah i'm with you so so you, did you did you dive into hero clicks at that I, point i dove in um i played for about a year i found a tiny shop hidden behind a KFC you couldn't see from the street. <laughs> and it was basically a club, but it ran like a store and they had Sunday afternoon here at clicks tournaments. And it was the only organized play of any kind going on anywhere close. Yep. 
I did that for a little while. Then I volunteered because I wanted free stuff. So I was a judge for them for a little while. And I ran, I ran some tournaments in this weird dying mall near my house. Um, <laughs> and I kept going to that game store of the guy who taught me new edition 40K. Um, and that's where I first played Munchkin and Settlers of Catan and a bunch of stuff right around 2001, 2002. And I walked in one day and there was a juggernaut, a Kador juggernaut in the case. And I was like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. There's this big, scary red robot. What is that? Yeah. And it was in the middle of the afternoon and only some of the regulars that were like, you know, people that worked late or, or didn't have jobs or whatever were in there. And I asked everybody, all six of them, and they all knew me. Like I'd been in there a lot and nobody could tell me what it was. One guy said, I think it's something for chain mail. Cause if you don't know, there was a D and D mini oh, yeah. game called chain mail for a little yeah. while. Um, that kind of did was connected because Mike McVeigh worked on chain mail and Mike McVeigh was one of the founders of privateer. Yep. So the only connection for, I, I had in my head for like a week and a half was there's this robot and it might be for chain mail. Um, and eventually through like internet sleuthing and going back into the shop and finally finding someone after a couple of weeks of going in, because I could only get down there about once a week. I found a guy who told me the story of there's this game company called Privateer Press. Uh, we went to Gen Con and they were selling models with no rules. And we bought God, that model and that. painted it. No and kidding. so I was like, well, I have a name now. So I went to the Privateer Press website, which was infantile. Like it had no information on it really at all. It had a logo. It had a photo or two. And I just looked at it every day. And I was working at a radio station that um, involved me pushing buttons. So I didn't, I, and I could, I can multitask. So I just haunted their website every morning until their forums were turned on. And then I just Isn't haunted their something? forums every morning. So like 2003 time period, 2004, I was just like obsessed with these robots because there were, because there was a game with weird robots and I'd, I'd have like a really old, terrible dreadnought from the old, old, old dreadnought, but I'd never seen anything cool like this. Right. And that was, and I was just obsessed. So like, well, and it's a big deal too, because it was a different aesthetic, right? Yeah, it, was, it was really it was, different. It, I mean, and people, people, um, people don't realize what privateer press did and how they shook everything up. Yeah. They changed the setting. They changed the aesthetic. Um, and it, they they were a big deal. But I didn't realize the slow burn that they had to start off. It was, with a, they, it was a real slow burn. I Interesting. That old forum account, which I don't know the password for anymore, is uh, is member number like 43. Isn't that something? Yeah, I was like, I had to be at work at four in the morning. And they turned the forums on in the afternoon the day before. And 40 something more people signed up for the forums than I did that first day. And that was back when like they had shown off Asphyxius and they'd shown off four or five other models. Like, like nothing for the game was really known. Wow, back that's then. something. But that's they something. were, but, but then, then we got to play it and I didn't even, I didn't get to play it, like buy it stock up because they, they did not understand demand. They released um, anybody that complained about like the Mark three, uh, starter scarcity if for war machine doesn't understand 2003 and 2004 um the shop that the i i got off work at noon from the radio station and i drove straight to the shop that i'd seen that first juggernaut at and i walked in and uh he had gotten two of each starter and they were already gone 
and he had gotten one or two or three or whatever of blisters of the because back then they released a starter and a secondary warcaster and that was the first wave they, they it was severius and a protector box and asphyxius and a crix box and i walked in and they had two severius blisters on the shelf and that was it so i and bought one something. Cause I was like, I'm, I'm playing this game. I don't care what it is. If, if I have, I wanted Cricks because Cricks has bones and robots. So of course <laughs> Cricks, but I was like, well, this, I'm going to own a war machine model. Cause I've been obsessed. So I'm going to buy this one. And I took it home and um, over the course of months, finally got a demo from a guy who had managed to buy two box sets and was instantly in love. And then eventually traded, uh, an old model Von Saar Necromunda gang for a Crick starter and an asphyxius from a guy who had bought it and hadn't gotten around to doing anything, but badly painting it. So like, it was a, it was a weird year of, yeah. of struggle to, to find this new thing that was, that no one was really understanding the shakeup that it was going to do. No, no, I, I don't think any, including privateer press to your yeah, point. Yeah. Like they didn't even realize what was going to happen and they, and they didn't. And we'll get into this a little bit after the break, but they didn't realize the huge gift from, from GW because GW just, just let, just let it all happen. Well, which that, is, that was the, that was the dark. I mean, besides me having that, that reaction of leaving games workshop yeah. in, in the, right around the turn of the century, it was also a very dark time for, for anybody that was a GW fan, like yep. the company's, the company's mindset was a hundred and eighty or more degrees different than it is today. Like anybody who's yeah. gotten into a Games Workshop game in the last five years or six years, it's a different doesn't understand what it was like to be a, a, a tabletop miniatures gamer in the year 2000 or whatever, because it was just a completely different environment. And, and I'm going to exaggerate a little bit, but, but I'm not exaggerating that much. There were times where you felt like GW kind of hated you. There were a lot of jokes around the early internet about how horrible GW was to people. Yeah, And, and, and it, some of it was exaggerated, but it was, it's, I believe it was very exaggerated, but yeah. But then again, that just comes down to how you look at capitalism and stuff. Well, yeah, and and it um it didn't help that GW was behind the curve about the internet. Yeah. And and the draconian measures that they took to try to control commerce in the age of in the digital age was uh, was 5 if not 10 years behind and it was a little laughable at the time and but you had companies like um Steamforged and companies like Privateer, you know, uh, Privateer Press that came in and said, OK, you know, we're, we're going to take yeah. advantage of this. Yeah. And they did. So, guys, let's take a quick break and let's talk about Will's transition from player uh, scavenger, apparently, <laughs> into creator. So we'll be right back. Hi, this is Brian. I started listening to Third Floor Wars for information and insight about my favorite miniatures game, Malifaux. But I also get great interviews with game writers, designers, and artists, as well as some fantastic role-playing sessions with some really great players. I've been supporting them on Patreon for a year and a half so far, and it has been well worth it. Right now is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content you're already getting for free. They'll go on and explain that by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. 
Here on the third floor, we commit to not interrupting your episode of Tabletop Talk with such a plea. We pledge not to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month. Even if there's a link in this show's description, and there is, we won't ask you to click it and become a patron. We won't spend time yammering about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting those episodes without ad breaks, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway, enjoy this episode. We needed to clarify that we wouldn't do this type of solicitation. Time to give a quick shout out to our most recent patrons. A big thanks goes out to John Mahoney, Philip Masca, Joshua Edwards, Clay Pierce, Peter Sojanek, King Salt Nathan, Jimmy CZ, Wayne Peacock, Oliver Borden, Zachary Wills, Jay Douglas Nielsen, Patrick Healy, Ham Dog, Greg Packman, Eric Conrad, Alan Cardinal, Raven Zato, and Philip Savoy. Because of you and the 100 other plus patrons, I'm able to put out content on a regular basis. We appreciate you. So now that we got a, got a sense of, you know, Will falling in love with the hobby um, and going through the trials and tribulation of trying to spend money so that he can enjoy the hobby. When was the transition, Will? So when did you first start touching the industry, not as a consumer, but as a participant? So uh, along with my becoming a Heroclix judge because I wanted free stuff, because I was uh, was working what turned out to be a dead end job. I thought it was the beginning of a radio career, but it, it wasn't. Um, <laughs> they, weren't, radio, they weren't paying me very well and I didn't have a lot of spare cash. And most of that spare cash was being funneled into, you know, the, the few hobby miniatures I wanted to play. So all this, all the extra stuff I was trying to, to unfortunately to use the modern term hustle um, and do some like gig economy kind of stuff for it. And I found out that game companies wanted volunteers that they would give free product to. And the, my first experience with that was judging for hero clicks. And then I discovered that Steve Jackson games had a volunteer program and they would give you copies of things. If you demoed things. So I was like, cool, I can get copies of games. And I, all I have to do is play games with people easy right. peasy. So for a couple of years there in Kansas city, I was, I was the resident Steve Jackson games volunteer going to the couple of conventions and doing, doing game store demos and stuff. And my my radio career was going nowhere. Um, I got passed up for the exact same promotion for the third time right as I was leaving. And as I was leaving, Steve Jackson Games, because I was on their website every day because their uh, their blog is a very sneaky way to get you to check their website every single day. Um, so I was going to their website every day and they had a post that said, we have some job openings. And one of them was art director. And I like art. <laughs> so... <laughs> Hey, cool. I know what the word director means. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and my wife and I had already been talking about moving to Austin because her dad was down there and, and her two younger siblings who she hadn't spent a lot of time with. So we were like, well, if we were going to just move down there and hunt for jobs, why don't I just throw my resume at these people and see what happens? Yeah. So I went down there and had an interview with them and there was only a few applicants. And it turned out that art director at Steve Jackson games doesn't mean the same thing as it does at other places. Other places require you to be an artist. Right. Steve Jackson games really just wants you to manage freelancers and their contracts uh, and write art specs and do stuff that it takes a certain amount of artistic eye to do, but right. not actually produce art. And it turns out I have those skills. I can, I can judge art. 
I can't really create art very well, sure. but I can judge it. So I just, we, we were just like, okay, I got this job. We're moving to Texas. And um, it's not that far. It's like 12 hour drive from Kansas City to Texas. So we just went and um, I was their art director. Then they needed help doing project management kind of stuff. So I started doing that too. Then the person who was doing their playtest coordination, which really just meant order food for playtest night, they decided they didn't want to do that anymore. So I was going to every playtest. So they said, why don't you get paid to stay after work? Because it was volunteer time unless you were doing it for your job. Um, why don't you get paid to stay after work and just order the food beforehand? And I was like, done. Yeah. And then we started work on Munchkin Quest, the great big board game that has since kind of been reimagined by Simon. I think it's weird. I don't understand. Um, <laughs> but Munchkin Quest was a massive endeavor and it was the biggest thing the company had had really done in in the modern era because right. Steve Jackson games has been around since the early 80s with Ogre and Car Wars and GURPS right. and all that kind of stuff. But it's had phases, right? It, 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 yeah. It, it, yeah. It, it, there's times where Steve Jackson's games was the king and yeah. then times where he fades, you know, the, the company fades yeah. away and then all of a sudden, boom, they're back again. It's amazing. But, but, but it's a really interesting company because Steve has to a certain extent invented parts of the modern game industry, no like question. the standalone card game. He created the very first one and didn't know if it would be cool or not. Didn't know if people would like it, yep. like was on a whim because origins back then was a wargaming con. So, yep. you know, all kinds of interesting stuff. And it was a great like Petri dish for my career to be there for the five years I was I there. And that Munchkin quest experience was, I was running the playtests. And then we decided we had to do daily play tests for it because it was such an endeavor and it was so big. Sure. So then I was the only person in every single play test. So they started inviting me to meetings to talk about play test feedback. And they liked my play test feedback and my insights and my, you know, my ideas for fixing things. Yeah. And then they started handing me development projects of my own. So I, I worked on uh, Revolution, which is one of my favorite games ever. It's a good game. Um, I, didn't real, I didn't realize that. Good for you. It's such, a, it's such an interesting Euro style game from a company yeah. that doesn't do that. But we found that game because Philip, the creator, was hand making copies and selling them. No and, kidding. And Phil, uh, the I don't know what his title is now, but the chief operating officer at the time of Steve Jackson Games, just bought a copy and took it to a con with us. And we played it every night, like six something? or eight games. It's a good game. And it wasn't as good then because it had a flaw or two. And so we, we, Phil called Philip and was like, w will you sell us this game? And the designer, Philip DuBerry, thought it was a joke. He didn't think it was a real offer. He had to double check who this <laughs> Phil Reed guy was calling him. And so I, so I, we got to work on that. And I worked on Nanook and a couple other games they published and a whole bunch of stuff they didn't publish, which is why I left. Um, as I was working there and doing 15 jobs and realizing more and more that game design was what I really liked. I real what I've learned in my, in my more recent like adult life is that problem solving is what I like. I like fixing problems, but at Steve Jackson games, the only problems were the game design problems. Like everything else functioned and it had a process and there wasn't yep. really any questions to answer, but with game design, especially because in that time they were still doing open submissions, which almost nobody does anymore. Yep. And so they were getting game designs that were promising, but not done Half-baked, And then yeah. we were working on them. And so it was always like, okay, I've been given this thing that's cool, but not perfect. How do we fix it? That's cool. And, um, and unfortunately, 
a lot of the things I was working on weren't coming out for various reasons. And so I was getting frustrated and I was like, I'm, they, they still let me do this job, but I keep hitting weird reasons why my projects aren't completing. And I keep having to start new projects when these other projects are not quite done yet. Yeah. So like I, I wasn't a hundred percent done working there, but I was getting close I was getting those like itchy feet kind of feelings. Yep. And then privateer posted a job opening for a full-time developer. And I was like, I know DC and a couple other people there. I've been a massive fan for the sure. entire time. The company has been making miniatures games. I will apply for that job. And I did. And I, uh, if you're looking for a job in the game industry, I would uh, encourage you to stop <laughs> because <laughs> There are very few full-time jobs in the game industry. When I applied at, in 2011 to work at Privateer Press, there were 90 other applicants. Wow. And a lot of those people did not know what they were getting themselves into. Yeah. Um, when I then hired Phil, I mean, sorry, not Phil, Will Pagani, a couple of years later, I stopped counting at 60 or 70 or something applicants, and they just kept rolling in. Yeah. So, like, if... If you think that it's easy to get a full-time job in the game industry, I'm sad to say to you it's not because there are not a lot of companies that want full-time employees because there are not a lot of big companies that have extensive staffs. If you want to be a game designer, and we're going to probably get to this later, just do it. Just be a game designer. Don't wait for someone else to give you permission. That's not the kind of world we live in anymore. Just it's just not. It, yeah, it's not. And to your point, it, even the bigger companies have migrated to the gig economy yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, the, the vast majority of everything you see is all freelance with a couple core. Yeah. You know, a couple core people. Now, um, I I am spoiled. I continue to be spoiled. Um, I worked at Privateer for almost 10 years wow. and then um, just just short of 10 years and then some other people. Uh, who had hired some friends of mine who used to work at Privateer wanted to start making miniatures games. So they called me and said, do you want a job? Now this doesn't happen very often. Yeah. But it's just everything lined up perfectly so that I could, I still have a full time and I don't want this to sound like I have this thing and you can't have it. Don't ask for it. It's just, <laughs> I, I just happen to have lucked into this, well, I was about to in say, this weird way right. that I don't want other people to think is normal. Yeah, exactly. And we look at the other paths of, you know, you know, talked about Pagani and stuff like that. And what ended up happening with Pagani is, is its own thing, too. And and, you know, and it's not that you or or Pagani or anybody else doesn't deserve it. It's but it's worth pointing out that it's not normal. Yeah, right? there's that no it's, one it's a rare thing. Right. Exactly. There's no like exactly. this is the things you do. It's not like if you want to become an airline pilot, like it's it's a very straight path to becoming yep. like you have to know how to fly. You have to do all these things. And eventually an airline will give you a job. If you want to be a professional full-time game designer with a job that pays you insurance, good luck. Yep. They're rare and no one gets into it the same way as anybody else. It's just no, a I think trip. That's hundred percent right. And, and to, to reinforce your point, and we keep hearing this a lot on this show as I'm talking to more and more creators. It. We are now in a day and age where there's no excuses. If you've got a game yeah. in your head, they're 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 no longer a roadblock. Yeah. The only roadblock is you. And and it's not only that you don't need permission anymore to put out stuff, but the generosity of the consumers, the generosity of the other people in the industry. I mean, you'll be amazed how many people go, yeah, I'll look at your game. Um, you know, just randomly, uh, a friend of the show, Dennis Detweller, who created Delta Green, 
uh, he just randomly on Twitter like a week and a half ago said, if any of you guys are working on RPGs, shoot them to me. I've got some time. I'll look at them for yeah. you. And, you know, he came back and he said, you know, you know, I got, you know, like 30, 30 different things. 15 of them are freaking amazing. 15 other ones I had some good feedback at. But how cool is that? And that's not that's the norm, which is amazing. It's just yeah. the, the amount of generosity in the industry. So let's talk about Privateer Press. So you start working there and, and where, where did you fall initially? So they brought me in because they wanted to diversify and they wanted to make board games. So if, if you don't know the history of the company, they started making RPGs under the, the third edition D&D OGL, the open yep. gaming license. Um, Matt Wilson, the owner, founder, creative guy at the company, he always wanted to make miniatures games. So eventually they turned their RPG setting into a tabletop war game and then expanded it with hordes after War Machine. Um, they made Monpoc. Uh, the original Monster Apocalypse back in 2008. And they had done a few little things. They did a grind board game that's like, you know, robot sports. Vaguely uh, remember that, yeah. They, they put out a magazine article that was a version of grind. And then they put out a board game that was a different version of grind. Uh, it was probably too expensive for the market at the moment. Um, so it didn't, it didn't like take off and do super well. But they also made a little card game called Infernal Contraption that was really popular and fun. But they didn't really... They didn't really have the energy and time and staff to devote 100% to making board games when they were trying to get War Machine out the door. And anytime you make a miniatures game with a monthly release cycle, it takes a whole lot of effort. Yeah. So they wanted to hire another developer and they wanted to bring that person on to be in charge of board games. I just so happened to work at a board game company at Perfect. the time. So I like my first week, I had a meeting with Matt and he explained to me the level seven concept. Uh, which was a whole bunch of different things, some of which were very pie in the sky, like maybe it'll go here, maybe it'll do this, maybe there'll be a movie, you know. But <laughs> but he wanted he wanted to make a series of games that told a story and and expressed each game in its own individual way, but they were all connected by the umbrella theme of cool the Level 7 universe, which, if you don't know, is a very modern UFO conspiracy kind of thing, like a little bit of a twist on the real-world UFO conspiracy as if it was real. So I started working on Level 7 Escape, like, right away. Made a ridiculously terrible prototype that, <laughs> that shares nothing with the real game because Matt was like, can you at least, like, he was talking to people in places about things and he wanted some like something to show them that like, hey, we're making a board game. So I took my really bad prototype and set it on the conference room table and we took a picture of it and we sent it to Matt and it doesn't look anything like the real game. But, you know, we did that. But how about mechanically at that point? Was there any core mechanics that survived? There was, so totally no, different? There was no core mechanics. Um, Got it. It was a completely different game. It wasn't until uh, we started having conversations about what the game was. So Will Schick. Uh, now with Atomic Mass games, yep. um, Marvel Crisis Protocol, Will Schick was the uh, director of creativity or whatever. Uh, he was in charge of getting games made and being like the person who was kind of leading the marketing and the design of games back then. And we had a conversation about like, well, what is this game? Yep. And the the level seven story is the government has been conspiring with aliens that showed up in the fifties with the whole Roswell thing. And the aliens have been trading technology to the U S government for access to test subjects because the aliens are looking for something in our DNA that will save them from a horrible plague. Uh, and so in level seven escape, the reason it's called escape 
is because you're a test subject and you want to get out. So we were like, this, this is probably, this is probably a haunted house game. It's, mm-hmm. it's probably what it is. Like you're running for your life. You're scared. You're not a, you're not a tough guy. You're not right. going to like, you know, kick down a door and shoot an alien in the face. You're, you're a civilian who's confused and terrified running in the dark. So I did what every good game designer does. I borrowed something from somebody else. <laughs> sure. um, and I have met Mike Selinker in the meantime. And I've never, I don't think I've directly told him to his face that I borrowed a big chunk of, <laughs> of his game from him. But I have told him things like this. Um, so we looked at the original Betrayal at House on the Hill, not the legacy version that's come out. And I was like, well, Betrayal is running around a haunted house, like connecting doorways and creating passages and running into things. And so that's where we started. We were like, well, what if Betrayal was in a weird government lab and there were monsters chasing you? And it wasn't like, like, I love Betrayal in that it's a, it's a spooky story and you never know how it's going to turn out. And all of a sudden this thing touches that thing. And suddenly there's a, there's a, you know, a witch or, yep. or a ghost or a Bigfoot or whatever. Yeah. And a paragraph to read and the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. So we wanted to do chapters of a story instead of, you know, 50 scenarios that could each happen. So that was the big, that was a big divergence, but then everything else changed. It was just like, we're going to have tiles. There's going to be doors. They're going to connect that kind of stuff. Uh And then we just started, I like, like my, my favorite thing to do is cut up cardboard, take a Sharpie to it, start making a game. And I get a lot of feedback from people who complain about how ugly my prototypes are, but I, another one of those little things about game design and professional versus non-professional work. I don't have to make pretty prototypes, right? Someone's paying me to make this game. If you're going to make a game, don't spend money and effort and time making a pretty prototype the first time you play it. But before you show it to somebody, you should have a pretty prototype. But that's not the that's that's like six months into design, not right. like a week. The biggest mistake that I always try to help other uh, fledgling game designers with is don't put time and effort into the visuals of your game because you're going to change everything about your game. Yep. A couple of times over the first, like hopefully only a couple of times, but like my first prototype for Escape, I threw all that away. It was just the beginnings of, because I make games in a very development mindset. There's, There's two kinds of things in game design. There's designers who are like, this is how the math works. And this is how I imagine it in my head. And then there are developers, and this works differently from different places, like Magic the Gathering's design development is different than this. Yeah. But developers then take the things that the designer has theorized about and they play with it and they see if it works yep. and then they tweak it. And usually the design and development process is separate if it can be like mm-hmm. in small studios like Atomic Mass and Privateer and stuff. The design and the development's very intertwined. But like at Magic the Gathering, they have a design like R&D department that's like put a fireball in the set and then the developers make a fireball. And yep. that's kind of separate. So for me. I need to get it on the table and I need to start pushing pieces around and like, and rolling dice and thinking about how it works. Even if it doesn't work, even if it's just some pieces of paper with words scribbled on them, I got to see how they're, they kind of touch each other on the table. Right. And how it feels. Yeah. Yeah. So that was what I did. I printed out some graph paper with one inch squares and I just started messing around with ideas in Photoshop and like, what if it has these, this number of icons and what if there's a space for cards and that kind of stuff. So what was the first click then? When was the first time you went, oh, wait a minute, I, th- this this might be something. The first the first click was uh, looking at Betrayal. And then we'd also been play, playing other people's games because that's yep. 
you, you have to understand, and I'm kind of uh, guilty of not doing this as well in the last couple of years because I've been so focused on miniatures game design for Monster Apocalypse and stuff that I haven't been playing a lot of other board games and, and getting an, you know, I, I talk to people, I've watched people play Wingspan, but for some reason I've never actually sat down and played Wingspan. And it's a terrible sin. I should yeah. have played Wingspan by now. Um, yeah. In fact, well, the interview's over at this point. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I've just failed. I'm, no, no more me. Um, but we were doing, we were doing lunches where we would just play other people's games. Yeah. And so like uh, Will Schick ran us through second edition descent over a lunch and just some other stuff like that. And I don't know exactly if that happened, what time period, but that's one of the examples. Sure. And we played the Gears of War game. Interesting. And there's a lot of things I don't like about that Gears of War game, that board game that Fantasy Fight put out. It's a really good game. There's some things I don't like about it and some things I do like about it. But one of the things it had in it was your actions were cards in your hand and your cards in your hand were also your health. Right. And you had to play a card every turn to do a thing. But if you got hit, you would lose your options. So Schick and I were talking after that game about like the ideas we had, because Matt was really, really insistent on theme because that's a thing that privateer and most miniatures companies do. They design top down, which means theme determines everything. And bottom up is math determines everything. Like, you know, this thing should have a gun that shoots 24 inches. No one designs miniatures games that way. People like Reiner Knizia design board games that way because you're right. just making like mathematical equations happen on a board. But yep. almost all miniatures games are, this guy is a big, scary dude with a sword. How does that work? So make him a big, scary guy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. So, um, so Matt was really keyed in on the entire concept that fear was a drug to the aliens. That Ooh, they love, nice. they like that the the adrenaline and stuff in your blood is literally like cocaine to these aliens. So fear drives the entire system. And so we knew we had played, uh, we hadn't played it together, but we had talked about Android, the great big giant mystery game monstrosity that that Fancy Fight put out a few years ago, and it had this really interesting system of this like light and dark meter that controlled how you played cards. And so if you played certain cards, it would push you to dark, but you couldn't play more cards to push you farther to dark because you were too far and you had to play these light and dark cards back and forth to kind of bounce your meter back and forth. And we were talking about that kind of concept for a fear mechanic. And then we played Gears of War and we were like, well, that's how you do it. Your hand of cards is your health. You play cards to do things and playing those cards pushes your fear up or pushes your fear down. And like, if you have to think harder, you calm down. But if you have to run faster, you freak out. And so like Betrayal of House in the Hill and and the card mechanic part of the Gears of War game, together with those other conversations about the Android light and dark system and everything else, just yeah. kind of flew, flew together into a big pile. And then the best thing that happened, I cannot take credit for, um, Ed Burrell, who has since um, gone back to... Um, being an independent person doing skeleton key games full time and doing successful Kickstarters. Look them up. Um, we, I had all my cardboard things with Sharpies on them. And I just, when I started, I just drew arrows. Like there's a door here, there's a door here. So arrows had to point at each other. And we had just finished a play test and Ed was just kind of just touching the tiles, picking them up, messing around. And he's like, you know, we could do something different that nobody has ever done before. Because this is an underground facility and in Matt's little short film he made as a proof of concept, like sizzle reel for talking to people about the whole brand, the guy has to crawl through the vents or something. And Ed's like, well, why don't we put vents on? 
And so Ed just like got a pencil and started like, what if there's like a vent along this edge of the tile and a vent along this edge of the tile and a duct here and like they connect. And so you're building two maps at the same time, Interesting. You're building the doors map. And then you're building the vents and the, and the ducting map right. and you can fall into a vent and along the duct and pop out a new vent to like try to circumvent where the aliens are at. So that was like the final little piece that really made the game come together. It's funny, isn't it? And then we play tested a bunch of it and, um, Lots and lots of playtesters were murdered horribly by alien monstrosities. And we got it to the point where enough people were surviving that we thought it was good because it's a survival horror game. You're not supposed to yep. have a high survival rate. So we got to the point where it was like, well, this is this feels about as killy as we want it to be and as terrifying and and random and all that kind of stuff. And then we put it out. Uh, and then I started working on the the game that I love that is my like, you know, still cherished favorite top design game. I put all my effort and love into accidentally, um, which is Omega Protocol, the second game in the series. Um, and I still, I love, I love Level 7 Escape. I have a lot of time, fun every time we play it, but it's not a game about being a badass machine gunning aliens in the face. Right. So I lean toward Omega Protocol. <laughs> so after the frustration, Will, of, of what you felt at Steve Jackson, right, which was you, yeah. you put your heart and soul in all of this stuff, right? And, and, and it's, it's eight, 10, 15 hours of your freaking day over and over and over again, only to find that no one's going to play the damn thing. And, and that that frustrates you. Now you go to Privateer Press and you finally have something that's out there in the wild. What was that yeah. like? Uh, it was real weird. So yeah. um, I went to Adepticon in 2012 for the very first time. No one knew who I was because uh Escape was about to come out. I, I started in 2011 and it took about a year to make all the board games I ever made. Um, so Escape was coming out at Gen Con that year. So we were a couple of months away from Escape, but we had some promotional materials and some like stuff to show off. And they just needed staff and I wanted to go to Adepticon my whole life. So uh, I got to go to Adepticon. And then the whole time I had to explain to everybody who I was. <laughs> yeah. They were like, who are you? What do you do? And I'm like, I make the board games. And they're like, you guys make board games? I'm like, well, technically not yet. We do have Infernal Contraption and stuff, but we, we haven't made board games for real. But that's my job. That's what I'm going to do. And then people would be like, okay, cool. And they would walk off and look for someone who they thought mattered. Um, right. So I made the mistake of telling uh, whoever ran the conventions the next year, since I was like neck deep in Omega Protocol, right around that springtime, because almost all the games I made also went to print in the spring so that they could come out at Gen Con because sure. it takes about three months or so for a, a, a right, thing in cycle, China yeah. to print yep. and ship and all that. So I made the mistake of telling the con guy that year, I'm really busy. Don't I, I can't go to Adepticon this year. And, and the year before had been so disappointing of like just of having no one care who I'm a I real was. Boy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I had fun that year, but it was it was just it was it was a little bit annoying. Sure. Um, and then they just left my list, my name off the list until 2018. So I had six That's years funny. of no Adepticon um, <laughs> just because I made an offhand comment about the blacklist. About, yeah, not going. <laughs> yeah, it was wild. Um, I am not, I'm not a person who, who's like super, super into specific experiences like that. Um, because I've had my name on other products in the past and they had right. been, it, I, it's never been that whole like, I'm holding a thing for the first time that I made because I had had my fingers in so much stuff. So it was like a yeah. slow grow. And I yep. don't tend to be really um, exuberantly like excited about stuff that is that it's mundane to me because my brain goes on 
whole other levels and you don't want to talk about that. We're talking about sure. game design. Um, so it was, it was cool and it was weird and it was interesting. Um, but the other part about it is I was busy. <laughs> That's <laughs> like a good point. That yep. game came out and we had already started Omega Protocol in the summer before Escape came out. And Omega Protocol was the game I did not know I always wanted to make. Right. So the other part of that escape coming out for the first time is like, okay, I, yeah, escape is cool. I don't care about Old that. News. Wait till you see what I'm working on now. Cause what I'm working yeah. on now is awesome. Yeah. Um, the only thing like that I had, I had, I had one experience that was one of those shocking, like, you know, made it moments where I was at PAX and um, we were setting up our booth and across the aisle from us uh, was a game store booth that was also like owned by the people who run catalyst games. And so like, there's a weird, I don't know. It was a game store. I don't, I think they closed the game store, but anyway, I was talking to these people that I kind of knew in the industry and also about stuff. And this random stranger walks up who's working in the booth and she sees my shirt with a privateer logo on it. And she's like, Oh, you work at privateer press. They make my favorite game. Get out. And I was like, well, yeah, everyone loves war machine. It's great. And she's like, no, (laughs) no, I like level seven escape. It's my favorite game. And I'm like, did you guys tell her to say that? Because that doesn't seem like a thing that could ever actually happen. So, yeah. So I got to I got to make that person's day by by telling her that I was the person but who made that. That's cool, game. man. Yeah, I know. It's weird. It doesn't happen very often. It's only happened. There's only one other time something like that's happened. And I'll jump ahead chronologically to tell you that story real fast. Um, Company of Iron was the first thing non board game that I made for privateer. And it was really just me taking a hacksaw to the war machine rules and making a skirmish game, uh, like a true squad skirmish game out of it. Yep. And the community was ridiculously excited about it. Like ridiculously excited. Um, I, we went to Gen Con that year. Uh, I think it was 2017 and I was walking by myself down the sidewalk at like, 6 p.m. or whatever after the hall had closed. Maybe it was the first day and like setup was done, but the hall hadn't opened. And I walked past this guy and he's not paying attention to me and I'm not paying attention to him. And he stops like four steps behind me and yells my name out. <laughs> and I turn around. I'm like, yes, do I know you? And then he tells me that he's excited about Company of Iron. And he recognized me from like the videos and stuff we did. That's so that's funny. the two. That's the two like. I'm famous. This is weird. I don't know how to handle it moments that I've had at the top of my list. From, from <laughs> that's that's great. Stuff. So, Will, you actually, you set up a great transition because I want to do a segment about Company of Iron. So yeah. let's take a quick break and we get back. I want to talk about Company of Iron because it's a little bit of a change. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, needless to say, a very popular game. So we'll be right back. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. 
Howdy friends, Craig here. You deserve a new playmat. Here on the third floor, we use mats by Mars. They are scratch resistant, waterproof, wet erase marker compatible, almost free of glare and lighter than neoprene. Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. You pick a mat, pick a design, and then you pick an overlay, like one for Marvel Crisis Protocol, Star Wars Legion, or even Malifaux 3rd Edition. Those overlays will really speed up your deployment and make the placement of objective markers so easy. Use our promotion code in the show notes to get a 10% discount on your first order. In the notes of your order, you can even request the third floor logo on your mat for free. That makes the best mat in the business even a little better. So get some new mats, save yourself some money, and help support the show. Go to matsbymars.com. All the details are in the show notes, including the discount code. So a lifelong lover of privateer press miniature games, you finally get hired by them and they have you make board games. Now, it sounds like you enjoyed that. Well, so like I said, <laughs> Omega Protocol was the game I didn't know I always wanted to make because it's a yep. dungeon crawl and I had played so many dungeon crawls and I had, I guess, in the back of my head, filed reasons that I didn't like those 100%. Like they're all good games. I, I played a ton of Descent First Edition, but there were things about it I didn't like. And subconsciously, I realized that after I sat down to make my version of it. And so, like, I have now made two Dungeon Crawl-ish games with the um, board games from the IK, Undercity and Widder's Wood. But Omega Protocols probably till, like, you know, the rest of my life is over. The game that I had the most fun and I'm the happiest with. And it's like the thing I hold so up as my What was favorite. it? Like, why is that that? Why is, why is that your favorite girl? Because it, because it was just like, and this is not to toot my own horn, but it was just such a perfect thing. I didn't, I, and I, I'm very stream of consciousness. I mean, if you can't tell from listening to me talk on this <laughs> podcast, I'm very stream of consciousness. And like, like that earlier reference, Schick and I were talking a lot about dungeon crawls and that kind of stuff. And I realized a couple of things about other people's games um, that were things I didn't like, like the the DM getting all their powers from a card deck that was random that you couldn't predict. Like I played a lot of the first Doom game and I love the first Doom game, uh, but the, the heroes can't win it because it's just mean. Um, but the <laughs> bad guy can't do things if the bad guy yeah. doesn't have a couple of cards. But if the bad guy gets the right couple of cards, it's just like game over. You're done. Yep, and I that, wanted... That- that's funny you say that because I had the same experience with it. like Descent tried to be what I wanted it to be. Yeah. And like, I, and you remember the campaign uh-huh. expansion they put out for it? I'm yeah. like, that solves it, right? I bought that and I'm like, nah, it just makes it more of the same. Yeah. And, and it, it was, came so close. And I heard it got better with further editions. And it was, but I didn't it was fun. It. We had a ton of fun playing it. Yeah. Um, but like in the back of my head, I didn't, I wasn't thinking about it consciously, but I was, I was unhappy with the card deck mechanic. So when I sat down to make a Omega Protocol, if I can speak clearly. Um, I was like, what can replace the card deck mechanic? And it was powers from Diablo buttons. You push that cool down so that your decision points matter. Like I've got to use this power now and I won't have it back for two more turns. If I use it now, it's the best time to use it. So it rewards decision-making and it's a resource mechanic, which private to press has always focused on. And then the other half of that, especially descent conversation was in descent. You could pick like, a token that was like guard or do whatever. And I wanted a more complicated and nuanced system. So I made stance cards that were like, are you moving fast and shooting badly? Or are you aiming, which you hardly move and you have a, a melee defense and a, and a range defense. And if you're running fast, you're hard to shoot, but you're easier to stab. And if you're sitting still, you're 
easier to shoot but harder to stab, whatever. Yep. Um, and so these two, that two things, the the bad guy having like you know cooldown powers from Diablo, and the good guys having stances that they could fine tune exactly how they worked were the two first things that happened. And then we were trying to connect those two things. And we just realized that we had the fear mechanic from escape. Oh, right. So if the heroes are gaining adrenaline to do things and the bad guy is spinning that adrenaline, it's a circle almost. It, it goes back to the bank instead of going back, but it's a, yep. it's this ecosystem of what you do powers up me. So you don't want to fail anything. You don't want to take a shot and miss because yep. that's just two tokens you're going to give me. And then we got to play with all that stuff. And it just, it came together in such a just effortlessly weird way. That's and I didn't realize until the game was almost done, there's only one deck of cards you shuffle in that entire game. It's the loot deck. You don't shuffle anything else. Dice and the loot deck are the two random parts of that game. It's in li- a lot like Revolution we were talking about earlier. Revolution's a game about player choices. Yep. Uh, people who are not good at the game um, complain about it as it's too random but there's nothing random about it. It's all player choices. If you're just stabbing in the dark, of course it feels random because you don't know what your opponents are doing. But if you play it like poker and you read your opponents and you outsmart them, it's an amazingly addictive game because there's nothing random. It's all about your choices. Well, it's a game that gets better the more you play it, which there's not a lot of games like that, right? But Revolution is one of them that, and for exactly the reasons that you just talked about. Um, So boy, you put that out. So super, super pleased with yourself. Uh huh. Then I made Invasion, and then I made some other board game stuff, and then the company kind of wanted to pull away from the board game arena. Um, We had a Kickstarter; it was successful, but it wasn't you know bonkers million dollar successful, and um, and they and they were talking about other ideas for miniatures games and stuff. And we had this long convoluted conversation um, at the end of my time working on the Iron Kingdoms board games about what I was going to do next and what the company wanted to do next. And we were starting to talk about putting games into no quarter. And so we had this conversation of what if we put um, a different version of war machine, a tiny version of war machine in no quarter. And they were like, well, who's going to work on that? And DC was too busy. And Souls, of course, um, is working on War Machine at that time period. So they were like, well, you're not doing anything right now. Why don't you do it? And I'm like, okay, cool. I get to play with War Machine. I get to do whatever I want to turn War Machine into a game where two squads fight each other. Um, and was and were that was that the parameters that you were given, Will? Where it was kind say, of. We, we want a small War Machine? Or I, I'd be interested of. to know what guardrails you had. Because it was also a roller coaster of a conversation. It was, is it a standalone product? Is it... Uh, a game that doesn't touch war machine. Is it a brand new game? Kind of like what Warcaster turned into. Like, right. what is it? And so it went from, it's only a, a no quarter article to it's a full new standalone game with its own miniatures and its own setting to then it kind of just settling down like a, you know, like a pendulum running out of steam in the middle of it's a standalone thing that uses war machine because we don't want to add another miniatures line to the production yep. schedule right now but we want to make a new standalone-ish game. And then the parameters were really make a good game that you can play with only a few War Machine miniatures. And I actually cut out more of it than I w- than they wanted, and they, I had to put stuff back in. Because when I first started making it, I was like, there's nothing besides soldiers in this. There's no War Jacks. There's no War Beasts. There's nothing. And then someone came back and was like, well, War war jacks are kind of the thing like if you take war jacks out of out of the iron kingdoms what sets it apart from other games and they're right 
but it would have been an easier game to make if there were no warjacks in it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we, we basically sat down and we were like, well, if you have, you know, a squad box or two or a 10 man squad and a, and a solo or two, like, is that enough to play a game? And then like, like everything I've really been involved in, in that time period of privateer, we just started playing it and seeing what happened. So I knew I wanted individual alternating activations and I wanted some sort of, of like survival mechanic because war machine models die instantly. It's a thing about the war game is that almost nothing can survive a turn of combat because things are supposed to churn and like guns only fail to kill people if they miss or if they roll snake eyes on the damage roll. So like I knew most most models are a hit point, right? It's a way to track hit points. And I knew that I didn't want to add hit points to every model because that gets tedious because if you're trying to track the hit points on 13 different soldier models, um, what's the point of that? That's no fun. And dice math wise, even if you give every model five hit points, on average, they still die in one hit. So um, I'd played, like I said, Necromunda by myself in the, in the <laughs> turn of the century. And it's one of my favorite games. And I was like, well, Necromunda does this thing where you just sometimes you survive being shot. And I wanted to make the game about the scenarios more than just wiping out your opponent's army because I wanted your opponent to always kind of be in the game. So I just made the decision, which was not 100% popular with every player, that models were just randomly not going to die. And we started playing and we played like the the long range uh, penalty to shooting came out of just like, is this game fun if you have a bunch of guys with range 14 firearms and I have mana war or whatever who are not going to get to you? Is like, you know, Forge Guard going to cross the table fast enough versus Winter Guard Rifle Corps to yeah. actually have a game? And so we just played it and played it and played it and played it and played it. And um, the thing that I'm most proud about on that game, and I'm going to steal it from, I'm going to steal an idea for it, my next game design, um, is the is the balance deck, the the deck of cards. Because we realized early on that the points in War Machine do not equate to the points in Company of Iron. But you ask about guardrails. One of the biggest guardrails that was stuck on the game, whether I liked it or not, was that uh, it was decided that it would be the best game it could be if people could use all the memories they had of how things worked. Interesting. Okay. So So like you couldn't veer veer too much. Yeah. So if you've if you've looked at uh, at Kill Team, you realize that Kill Team doesn't work 100 percent like 40K. Right. Like Kill Team tweaks some stuff here and there. Um, and we had lots of conversations about like, well, what if we just restat the trencher? He's still a trencher. He's still called a trencher. It's still the trencher model, but we just, we dropped the pow on the guns so that guns don't automatically kill people. Um, but the conversation was, well, we were trying to sell this to war machine players and war machine players know like it's ridiculous. Some war machine players, many war machine players, they they have those stat blocks. They're like, What's the rat of a whatever? And they'll tell you exactly what it is. Um, So the decision was made that we wanted to make the game not jarring to those experienced players. So we had to tack on other things. And what I realized early on was like a 10 point squad over here and a 10 point squad over here are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. Because like Pharaoh Brigands, their job is doing this, often sandbagging tar pitting, whatever your opponent holding territory. Whereas this 10 point squad over here, its job might be just blowing everything off the table. So it's, it's stats say it can do that. 
Whereas these guys' stats say they need help to kill things. They need a spell or they need a feat or they need something. Well, I'd be curious, Will, because I've heard this a couple of times. I want to know if this has been your experience, but I've heard a few people say, essentially, and I'm going to distill this down, that despite what you might think from the outside, in a weird way, it's easier to balance a large scale multi-model game than it is to 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 balance a skirmish game because of exactly kind of what you just talked about. Do you find that to be the case or I we could talk for literally episode upon episode upon episode <laughs> about my my thoughts on balance. Um, it's in my opinion, it is hard to truly balance any game. I think that the best you can do is illusions of balance that make people feel okay. And right. you're and never going to balance. Sure. I, I don't mean like literally like yeah. the way, the, yeah. I, not the way war gamers talk about yeah. balance. Right. I'm talking about like two people having fun. Balance. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, it, I think it might be easier to balance a big game because there's more distraction and it's harder for more casual players, especially to know how bad they're doing in a big game where, 75% of the models are still on the table, but they've lost the game two turns ago. Right. Kind of thing. Um, because, yeah, in a skirmish game, when you start losing soldiers or whatever, you start feeling it. And especially yeah. if, like, the objective is one specific thing and you can't do anything about it because of whatever. But it, <laughs> I don't think we balanced Company of Iron in any real capacity, but we <laughs> sure. did aim at making it as much fun as it could be because I also set out, I'm a very casual player. Um, I started playing 40K before we knew the points, but I, technically before some points existed. Sure. So we just had a lot of dump a bucket of stuff on the table and see what happens. And I'm a big fan of, of like historical scenarios of like the Alamo and stuff where you're like, yep. The, the Texans are not going to win this fight. There's no possible way they're going to win this fight, but you can play it and see how good they do and have or, a ton of fun doing or it. Or maybe, yeah. you know, maybe the something happens and like a bad dice roll goes off and these guys fail a charge or how, whatever the system is in the game. And yep. suddenly the, the underdog wins this never going to happen scenario. So uh, it was funny part of the reason I picked the word casualty for the role in company of iron is because it has the word casual in it. Interesting. And and in my personal opinion, the more random you put in a game, the more you force people to play it casually because they can't predict what's happening. They can't be like, well, this is the math. The math works out a hundred percent this because dice will just dice will just spite you. Any chance you give them. (laughs) That's true. So, so yeah, it's probably easier because the distraction purpose um, but also the other thing about skirmish games is they tend to be grainy, more granular, uh, grainier is what I was going to say, which isn't a real word, um, which is part of the is, is the weirdness of War Machine is that War Machine started out as a very small game with very granular model rules yep. and kind of grew and grew and grew until it was a big, a big war game yep. with still the same granularity of rules. So it, you know. It had some challenges. It had some challenges to some people, especially new players. So that was also part of the the company of iron thing is we were like, well, we kind of want to make a safe space for new players so that like they still kind of technically have to know what everything in the game does, but they could look at their opponents, two or three stat cards before the game and understand what's going to go on. And I set it up so that you couldn't like skew because you couldn't take more than one copy of anything. So you couldn't be like, a million of this will win every game because you couldn't have a million of this. 
Um, I think that system was kind of flawed because it made some armies impossible that would have been fun. And I yep. tried to kind of band-aid it at the end and like tweak it a little bit. But yeah, it it it's it's probably easier for a couple of reasons. But in my personal opinion, balance is not important. Fun is. Um, well, I'll tell you what, it's funny you say that because um, you want to talk about something that I've learned. Um, so there's, you know, for the past year, year and a half now, I've spent a lot of time talking to people like you. And, yeah. you know, I walked into this, like like everybody who plays games, they think they know how to design them right now. Oh, of course. Them. Like, it's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, ask me how to balance the game. I'll tell you. Yeah. I play it. Right. Um, and, and I'm amazed how much I've learned about the process and talking about this and what's important. And my initial reaction when I started having this conversation is just goes, no, 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 no. Balance is super important. But now now that I've had the conversation more than once, Will, and gone back and played, I realize I don't give a shit about it. Yeah. Like, like, unless it's completely out of control. Right. Yeah. But what, what happens is if it's completely out of control, it ruins what is important. What uh-huh. really is important is, am I enjoying myself? Yeah. Is this fun? Do I feel agency? Do I feel like my decisions mm-hmm. matter? Do I feel like at the end of the game, if I had made other choices, it would have impacted the game. Like I realized that's what I loved. Not if this was stat six and that was stat seven, or maybe you should have four wounds and not three wounds and stuff like that. Um, and it's, it's, it's really been eye opening for me. And I hope for my listeners as well, as we've walked through that. Um, and, and I'm putting that in context in case, in case I've got some new listeners right now that are going, what does he mean? It's not important. And, and, and you, you, you have to understand the bigger picture, which as a player, you just don't see. Well, I, I think this is going to strike some people wrong. I have a habit of 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 shortening things into a succinct cliche like phrase and it meaning something I don't mean it to. <laughs> but I think to a large extent, it's about maturity and not maturity like your little kid. interesting maturity like experience. Like I know a lot of people who get into a game early, especially a game that has such a competitive kind of environment. I don't like the word meta because I think it takes the face off the community. That's good. I I mean, like, like if you're from, if you're from, you know, Baton Rouge or whatever, that's your community. That's not your meta. That's not the way that, that, you know, the game is played. That's your friends. That's the people you play the game with. They all have a certain way of playing, but that's your community. That's how they play. And I really wish people would replace meta with community, but whatever, that's a whole different conversation. But I think it comes down to like when people start playing games often, um, whether they be young or old, they're so focused on, a certain aspect of it. And it's part of my problem with the general industry in the last 10 or 15 years is that winning has become such a more important part of the conversation at large in the store level, all the way up to the top of like the people running the companies. They're always like, well, we're going to award winners. We're going to give prizes. We're going to have tournaments like money and magic is a whole different thing. Um, But like I started doing this because I love toy soldiers and I can I had enough other friends that love toy soldiers that we could sit around on a Sunday, Saturday afternoon in the basement and push toy soldiers around and roll dice and get really unhappy about the results and then go play video games or or skateboard or whatever afterwards. And it wasn't any different to us of playing the game. Yeah. And, and I talk about this when I talk to people who make RPGs, but it still happens in tabletop gaming, yeah. too. And it's we're creating moments. We're creating mm-hmm. We're creating content. We're creating scenarios and movie scenes and and memories and, and shared mythologies. And and it is very easy to your point, Will, to lose track of that. And, and, and what I find happening is um, and I've had I just recently had this conversation on another podcast where I was a guest. Um, people forget what what we're doing this for. Right. We, we go to work 
to work, right? We, we push toy soldiers to have fun. And suddenly you see people forgetting to that like they're the, the, they're telling you how to have fun and, and they're forgetting that they're having fun and this is fun and why why are we yelling at each other right now this is fun right mm-hmm. and, and you just lose track of that and I think that um and I've seen this happen personally to to numerous people that when they started playing something they were so focused on like the the end the the destination but the journey is so much of a larger percentage of what you're doing. Like if you play a game of War Machine with somebody casually in a store, it might take three hours. Mm-hmm. If your fun is entirely hinged on the last couple of minutes and who got the W and who got the L, then like, why didn't you just flip a coin to see who gets to walk away with bragging rights? Because like, or let's throw all the models out and play the yeah, last turn. Like my favorite, <laughs> my favorite, one of my favorite experiences, one of my like top experiences ever playing 40k was in my friend's basement in like 1996 or whatever where my imperial guardsmen got trapped in a small building and some harlequins got in there on them and the first harlequin that charged down the hallway must have just run into the bayonet on the end of a guy's rifle because i rolled enough sixes and my friend rolled enough ones and that harlequin died and then i we always we were like wow so the Imperial Guardsman looks at his bayonet and thinks, you know, the Emperor has blessed me. I will kill them all. And then the Harlequins just mow the rest of the Guardsmen down because that's what you, that's what you would expect to happen. And that's, yeah. what, that's what followed through. But that one moment of like all of us stopping and being like, did that really happen? Did that Guardsman like trip just per- certain a certain way and his combat knife like flew out of his hand right in that guy's eye? And then the Harlequins stood around like for a second going like, did that what? Did you just really? And then they were like, wait, we're, we're the badasses. We're going to kill you now. And that's that was 20 years ago. And you remember it like it happened yeah. yesterday. And I have no idea who won that game. I don't yeah. think we probably even finished it because we didn't finish a lot of 4K games back then. Yeah. We were just own. doing whatever we were doing until we went on to until like friends came over to watch movies or whatever. And, yeah. I, and I think it's completely valid to play a game to win, to be in tournaments, to like to travel to Adepticon and try to be the champion of all the champion stuff. Um, I'm not trying to belittle any of that. But I think that that at the same time you're thinking about winning and you're thinking about like games as practice, you also have to think about games as a social activity that is just for the fun of it. And all the people I know who have some of them are still top tournament players who win games like crazy. All the people I know who have who have started enjoying the game more at a certain point in their life are because they realize like. I'm rolling dice and pushing toy soldiers around and I'm hanging out with someone who I've never met who might turn into one of my best friends in the entire world over the next 20 years who we only ever get to see each other at Adepticon every year. But we, we hang out for that weekend and you know, we're friends on Facebook and we talk all the time about war machine or Malifaux or whatever game we're playing. Yep. But like the, the personalness of the experience, like the internet has taken personal experience out of our lives put it back in because of covid because now everybody's using cameras and stuff on there sure and and voice comms but but like you're sharing a personal experience with a person face to face and you're you know you're breathing each other's air and you're and you, and you have a shared story like all those scientific studies that say like the experiences you have in an rpg are just as real to your brain as the experiences you have in your real actual life like the if, if you're not enjoying what you're doing because you're so focused on winning and you're not good enough to win yet or whatever, 
you are probably going to quit playing. But if you're focused on playing and having fun and enjoying that time with other people and getting over those losses, maybe you never get good enough. I never got good enough to win anything. I almost won a War Machine tournament one time when there was like six waves of models out and like <laughs> it was ridiculous and it was luck. But I kept playing War Machine. I went to War Machine weekend numerous years in a row. I like supported store tournaments because I was there to be part of the community and let other people have fun because you have to have an opponent to have fun. In you, a tabletop you, are, miniatures you, well, you, you are walking right into my, into my thing here. This is great. Well, I gotta have you on again. I like you. Hey, um, whenever both. Here's the big point. Both things can be true. Yeah. Both yeah. things can matter. What happens is when it, it, it gets out of balance and you mm-hmm. lose track of one, it, like it's okay to have both. And I had uh, 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 Baldwin Doxy and uh, Perkins on, and we had a whole episode devoted to competitive versus casual mm-hmm. and that dichotomy, both from a game perspective and a player perspective. And one of the big takeaways, and I can't remember if it was Baldwin or per, uh, Perkins that said this was um, you're going to find joy when you take responsibility for your opponent's uh, enjoyment. Yeah. When you take responsibility and say it is part of my job as a shared contract of us across the table mm-hmm. from each other, it, part of my job is to make sure you're having a good time. And if both of you can do that, it's unbelievable. Like the yeah. joy that will come back yeah. to playing the game. Um, so I, it, it's exactly the same point. I am not I am not a big fan of professional sports, but they figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> like. Uh, there's a few people here and there that are, that are actually don't like each other, but like professional athletes play a competitive thing. Then afterwards they're like, let's go get some beers. And, yeah. We're just, we're friends. And there are teams that never win, <laughs> but it isn't like they're like, well, we're just going to be done. I'm just not going to play baseball anymore. Cause it's their dream to play baseball for a exactly. living. It's a good point. And, yep. and the fact that we get to the fact that we live in a, in a time where there's leisure. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're not, we're, this isn't 600 we're not years the ago. Factory 10 hours a week. Yeah. You know, 10 hours a like, day. The fact that we get to play again, we get to travel. Well, when COVID not a thing, we get to travel halfway across the country and, and meet people from all around the world and throw plastic cubes and move plastic people and see who, who won. Like I've told people this for years, like the guys on the table, they care about winning. Like my general, Nice. When I play Age of Sigmar, my guys are not being like, well, we could win or we could lose because they're going to die. Like, they're right. serious. <laughs> Those corn guys, they really want to get over there and chop people's faces off. But, like, I don't have to care about that because they're worried about it for me. Like, like whatever's going to happen is going to happen and they're going to try. But I'd rather, like, I'm really bad about pausing games in the middle, board games, card games, whatever, and having a fun conversation for half an hour yeah. and driving one or two players crazy. <laughs> Because they want to play the game. And I'm like, but we were talking about this funny thing. And it was, I mean, I don't, I don't do that in RPGs because sometimes. I was about to say, you better not do that in my game. (laughs) Time time matters more than RPG. That's funny. But like, I I have been accused often of being the problem at a table because I have decided to stop and derail the conversation into a fun thing that we can all talk about and share and enjoy while the game is sitting there gathering dust, but you're right. And, and it'll be there when you get done. <laughs> yeah. Right. But the other thing about this, it's the same conversation that I feel like we might've finally gotten over, but maybe we haven't, maybe I'm just not paying attention because there used to be this big thing between people who painted and people who played and yep. like, I don't ever paint or I don't ever play. 
And there used to be this massive argument of those people were like, well, you're not doing it right if you're not painting your models. And the other people were like, well, you're not doing it right because you're not playing the game. Because you you're suck. Just, <laughs> you've got cases and cases of models painted, but you've never put them on the table and yep. rolled dice. Well, then what are you doing with those models? And I paint models because I think games look better personally from my experience if all the armies are painted because then they're not just little gray wandering right. zombies out there faceless they're like you know cool guys in armor and they look like what they're supposed to look like but you don't have to paint your models to play your game and you don't have to play a game to paint your models and i feel like we've gotten to the point where those two sides don't dislike each other as, as much, much. I but agree. The, but the casual competitive side of the miniatures world, there are some brighter spots, but there's still those people that are like, yep. oh, you don't play to win, then you're not playing right. Like, I'm rolling dice and I'm trying to remember all the rules. I feel like I'm playing. Here's the takeaway. Stop telling people how to have their fun. Oh, let, let people have their fun. Right. And where where people are finding joy in these games that we're playing, let them have that joy. And, yeah. and you know what? Don't empower them to take away your joy. So if your joy is painting a model and spending 10 hours on it and putting it on the table and having getting wiped off turn one and you find joy in that, then mm -hmm. then then you have found joy. And if the person across the table found joy because they killed that model turn one and that's how they found joy. Well, mm -hmm. guess what? The two of you had a great freaking time. So I have I, had more fun losing games. Yep than I've ever had winning games. No, I'm with you, man. I'm with you. So guys, we're going to take one more break. When we get back from this break, I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about what's happening now and what is happening next for Will. And I want to talk about kind of the overall landscape. I want to, I'd be curious to know um, what's out there right now, whether it be tabletop, uh, miniature games or role-playing games that uh, Will's excited about and what he's doing for fun. We'll be right back. Howdy folks, Craig here. Now, if you love gadgets as much as we do, you're going to love the new Third Floor Wars Gadget Bundle from Schooner Labs. Branded with the logo of your favorite podcast, it comes with two measuring multi-tools, a compass stepper for those tight and important movements, along with a compact dashboard to track your turn, strat, and scheme scoring, along with your soul stones and pass tokens. It is the perfect bundle for anyone who plays Malifaux or just wants to look cool while doing it. The link is in the show notes. Check them out and help support your favorite gaming podcast. So, you know, Privateer Press is, you know, known the most, you know, for warm hordes and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But there not is a word I like, by the way. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's a weird it's one of those weird words because you're like. So if some if you said I play Warm Hordes and someone went to a game store and was like I want to buy Warm Hordes and the guy like looks at you like what are you talking about we don't we don't sell anything like that like it's just one of those things okay sorry <laughs> no problem <laughs> now he's gonna tell me the interview's over it's your turn um so there's a lot of people that know Privateer Press for War Machine and Hordes yeah <laughs> uh -huh. but there is a whole nother like secret huge fan base for privateer press and that's around monster apocalypse and it, it, what's amazing to me is how much monster apocalypse players love monster apocalypse they're they are in love with that game and 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 you 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 were a part of that so w when did monster apocalypse come on the scene for you so i i have told people uh, both personally and publicly through privateer press media streams that Monster Apocalypse, shortened to Monpoc, it's easier to say. Uh, Monpoc was my favorite Privateer Press game before I got there because in 2008, they launched a pre-painted, slightly collectible version of Monpoc. I remember that, um, yeah. 
And it was a big deal at that Gen Con because uh, I was going to Gen Con through Steve Jackson Games. I and my friends pooled $150 to buy <laughs> to buy stuff. And then it, I ended up with all of it. Basically, I think I paid some of my friends back some of that money. Um, but but Monpoc was really interesting because the promise of War Machine was always your warcaster is like your king and your queen. Like they're your most important piece. If you lose them, you lose. But they're also your most powerful thing. In that time period, especially like like infantry was such a big growing thing in the game yep. that that like you could you could just lose a game and it had it didn't even feel like War Machine. Sometimes you're like, well, where were the robots? Like there weren't robots. There was one robot or two robots or whatever, just to make this one thing work. And then there was like 40 guys. So when Monpot came out, you have this massive monster like that was literally bigger than anything else on the table. I mean, these little tanks running around that could help it out and do stuff for it. But it was a wrestling match in a city with little guys helping out. And it wasn't perfect. There were some flaws and there were some builds of some armies that the little guys would win the game for you. And I didn't like that at all. But um, the fact that I didn't have to paint the models because that was during the time period of my life, which was most of the first half of my life where I didn't like painting very much. I didn't enjoy it. It was tedious to me and I was not good at it. And I, uh, and that's another philosophical conversation I'd love to have um, if you ever want to about painting and how I got past that. But we're not talking about that today. Um, So I played some Monpoc. It, it, it came out. It had various problems on the manufacturing side, which I don't know the details of because mm-hmm. I did not work at Privateer Press then, but I've heard stories. Uh, but they had some problems and some hiccups and stuff. And then the game ended, um, and it ended in a sad way, and there, was some, there were some very unhappy fans, and I'm sorry that that was not my fault, and I can't tell you who to blame for that. Um, but then in 20, 2018-ish, we decided, 2017 technically, we decided that we wanted as a company to, to do another miniatures game. And there was a lot of talk. Warcaster was in the conversation back then. Um, but Matt and Jason souls were not quite ready. They did. They hadn't really baked what they thought Warcaster was, Warcaster was be at one point. It was going to be kind of a war machine spinoff that was sort of related to war machine, but kind of its own thing. And then they decided to take a sci-fi and just completely split it, which I think was a better decision. Um, and I think it was Will Schick that was like, well, we have Monpoc, like it worked. We have the models, like it, we can re-sculpt them or some, some of them were d- digitally sculpted back in 2008 and stuff. Like the game worked well enough. We could just polish it a little bit and put out a hobby version, a paint your own models, don't buy collectible stuff version of Monpoc. And everyone was like, well, that should be easy. Um, spoiler alert, it wasn't easy because nothing <laughs> ever is. But it was relatively easy compared to other things. Um, and I went off to PAX Unplugged, I think, that year, maybe. And uh, they were, had not decided they were done working on it yet. Like, I mean, just decided they were going to start working on it. And when we got back from PAX that November, we were working on Monpoc. And I was still tying up stuff. I was still tying up Company of Iron a little bit. And there were a few other floating projects that we were trying to decide if we were going to do. And so Jason Souls took the took the first lead on Monpoc. Because what we did, just like with Company of Iron, is we played the old game and we changed stuff. We were like, rolling for powering up is stupid. Let's take that yeah. out of the game. Uh spending dice to move models is is tedious and 
Um, the thing we were trying to work on, because if you've played War Machine, you know about this phenomenon called the tank, uh, where there's just minutes at the beginning of turns where the player stares at the table and they're not there. They're not in the world. They're in this space of, you know, trying to do the math in their head that, you know, perfect mind, all those, all those calculations. Sure. And it's kind of a bummer. Um, yeah. The game is what it is. And a lot of games that have that pre-plan your turn, like Guild Ball and some other games, have that kind of that moment where you're like, okay, I have to think really hard and I have to do all this what is going to happen? Yeah, I'm going to roll five dice. I'll average three. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah, where do these right. tokens go? And how am I going to allocate yep. resources? And what model is going to do what when? And if the ball's there, then whatever. Yeah, and he does this. I do that. So yeah. we realized that um, forcing you to spend dice to attack and move models was was pulling people deep into that yep. in Monpok. So we were like, well, if everything just moves for free, like like any other game, <laughs> and your dice are your attack resource because you have to roll them to attack, and then that and they also do special power stuff. Um, so we had those conversations and we we streamlined the game and we also tried a couple of dead end ideas. Like we tried uh, cards that the idea for these cards ended up in Riot Quest. So like the gear cards in Riot Quest were a conversation that evolved out of a possible Monpox thing. Of that's something. Maybe the monsters have special traits that are interchangeable between monsters and like you get different cards and you can you know, plan your monster a little bit and have some customization options. But then we realized we didn't want to do that because Monpok was already complicated enough. Yep. And we had, we'd started talking about Riot Quest maybe being a thing. And Matt was like, we'll, we'll just put that gear card idea in there. <laughs> and then um, a couple of months went by of me just being a playtester for the game. And then my stuff wrapped up and Riot Quest planning and, and actual playtest was starting. And so we, that was when, everybody decided who was going to take over what and Hungerford got Riot Quest, even though I wanted it more and I got mom a bitch. Well, so Riot Quest, <laughs> this, this, this ties back into our earlier conversation. Cause everything does. Um, Riot Quest shares elements of Omega protocol. Uh, Interesting. The, the two defense stats, like that was my suggestion. We were talking about how, how damage should work in the game. And I'm like, well, in Omega protocol, the monsters have a normal damage stat and a super damage stat of like, you hit them hard enough, you hurt them better. Like, right. It rewards you rolling cool. And yep. so that went into Riot Quest. So I'd already had some input in Riot Quest. Yeah, and in Riot Quest, there. yeah, and Riot Quest is the casual game. And I'm a casual person. Monpok is much more thinky and a lot, and it's a lot more like, I mean, if War Machine's a little bit like chess, Monpok is a lot more like chess because it's played on a board with a grid and you only have a few pieces and, like movements so restricted and stuff. And I love Monpok, but like of the two, I was like, well, this is a super casual, silly game that already uses some of the DNA of a game I love and worked on. Could I work on that? And they were like, no, hunger forgets that one. You get Monpok. And I'm like, fine, I'll take Monpok. It's fine. Um, <laughs> Paychecks are cool. <laughs> yeah. And I love Monpok. So, so then right, bef- basically right before it all went to print, I, I took over Monpok. And it's funny, people over the first six or eight months of the game would ask me questions about stuff. Like, why'd you make the decision to give this guy this stat? And I'd be like, I don't know. Jason Souls did that. I like the first six months of the game were planned out when I took over. Um, you had the perfect scapegoat through the whole thing. Yeah, That's a good gig. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so technically, the first models I designed for the game were Hammerclack and Kraken Octus, like from scratch, having having had nobody else work on those. Um, but Monpok, oddly enough, might have taught me more about 
game design philosophy and the way I want to approach the future of my own personal game design than anything else. Why? And it comes down to that balance thing because Monpoc doesn't have points. Yeah. And this is a terrible spoiler for certain people, but points are a lie. <laughs> They're not real. <laughs> points are somebody's best guess at what something is. And, and if you look at the history of War Machine, War Machine started out with points in the tens. So like a Warcaster would be 60 something points and a Warjack would be 80 something points. Then they realized the thing that some other companies had also realized, like Malifaux, that you should just get the leader of your army for free because you have to have that model. So yeah. why charge for that model? So second edition was your Warcaster gives you points to buy Warjacks and the points shrank way down to like single digits. Yeah. Very few things were more than 20 points. And then we realized when we were working on Mark III that that wasn't enough. We needed decimal points. So we had to double the points back to, you know, 20s and 40s and stuff like that. And the, the thing that that taught me over those years, especially those Mark III years, is that you, the points are, points are a flawed system and you need them. Like you need something like Necromunda wouldn't work if you didn't have the points, which equals credits. Like this guy costs 10 bucks. This guy costs 50 bucks. This gun costs a hundred bucks. Like that's how Necromunda works. Cause it has to work that way. It couldn't be like, take whatever you want because you just take all the best stuff. Yeah. And they, you wouldn't try that with AOS initially and it didn't yeah. work. So, well, that's another, wow. That's another long conversation I've had with <laughs> some people that I, yeah. Uh, but that aside, um, points work in some games, especially more narrative games or big, crazy, complicated games that have a lot of moving parts. But Monpoc only has a couple of moving parts. And and one of the biggest things we changed between first edition Monpoc and second was we went from it being a fundamental game about one monster fighting one monster to a game where two monsters fight two monsters. Because in the first game, you could play two on two, but it was too tedious and complicated. But through streamlining it, we brought it up ease level to managing two monsters is really fun and cool and you get this tag team you know wrestling match kind of thing yeah so you your first decision in mom pack is what size game we're going to play we're going to play one monster two monsters or the mythical three monster game that isn't even real don't try it it's crazy <laughs> we put it in there for people that want to play super casual i can't make any promises that it's, it's in any way balanced And then that monster choice determines how many units you get. And I kind of feel like the unit choice is even kind of artificial. Like it could be 20 units just across the board, no matter what. But we kind of made it one monster, 15 units, because that's a smaller target for new players. Like they can have an army, like air quotes, an army when they get 15 units painted instead of 20. And it's just a smaller thing. But like the way units work and the limitations of the resources and getting them on the table, even if we gave you 60 units, you wouldn't get those all on the table. So it's really just the size of your sideboard. So it could have been the same number. But the idea and the experience of of building a game where a monster equaled one, where you didn't have decimal points to play with. It was Sky Sentinel and Gorgadra and whatever else Earth Knight, the guy they just showed off that was one of my last ideas that will be in the game. Um, Those guys all have to equal one. It has to be just as much fun to play Cthugrash as it is to play anybody else. Right. And there's synergies with units and there's combos with monsters and there's stuff like that. That is that like unpacking the game, Johnny, Timmy, Spike, you know, conversation. 
that is part of what people love, what certain people's brains love about miniatures games. I'm very much, uh, Timmy, I just want to see things happen. And the bigger they are, the cooler they are. Um, but we could, we could avoid that whole, like, making the perfect math equation, but still keep all the fun of mixing and matching and combos and stuff yep. by just saying there are no points. Everything equals one. Pick two monsters, play with two monsters. Um, we did do the whole there's only good guys and bad guys, which in a new edition of the game, I would have thrown out and done a, a little bit of a different system. So you could almost play any combination of models because I like for people to be able to play models. Yep. Arena Rex is one of my favorite games. I know we're going to talk about this in a second, but Arena Rex is one of my favorite games because it says you like a model, buy it and play it. It's one of the, it's one of the biggest lessons. I think that um, Schick and those guys took for MCP Marvel crisis protocol. Um, from things like Arena Rex was you love Captain America and you love Venom. Do you it. can play those two models. There's no restriction on, on playing any combination of superheroes because you love them and we want you to buy them and play them. Right. But if you want to only play the good guys, then then you can do that, too. That's the beautiful part of that, Will, is that by by not having that restriction, you don't stop somebody from restricting themselves. Like when yeah. I play MCP. I will not put a villain and a hero on the same thing. It is self-imposed by me, and it's a restriction I put on myself, and the rule says I can do that too, and that's what's awesome. I want to play, I still want, I'm still trying to build it. I haven't bought enough models, and I'm lazy when it comes to a painting model, so I try to limit myself on getting new models until, but I want to play like the Red Skull and a bunch of mooks. I want to play the Red Skull and like Winter Soldier and Bullseye, and like there's only one big boss on the team. Like the box set, I love the box set. But it's a bunch of big name bad guys, and I don't yep. want a team of big name bad guys. I want a, I want Zemo running around with the lowest level threats he can possibly bring. I want Crossbones, and I want Bullseye, and I want Taskmaster. I want those people to be on his team because he's the big boss. He's not going to share the spotlight with anybody. And 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 you can do that. That's what's cool. Yeah. So yeah, I worked on Monpok for the last couple of years. I was there. Um, COVID was an interesting time to work on any game. Luckily, sure. luckily there are, um, there are systems available on the internet that would let us test Monpox so we could still play Monpox by ourselves from our houses. Um, and the last thing I worked on at Privateer was a complete, completely like out of left field thing. We decided during COVID, especially in the summer, we were having conversations about like, we did not know when the production staff would be able to get back in the building. And, yeah. and privateer, especially now that the plastics are less and less of a thing, they manufacture every model almost in the, the office in, in Seattle. Like the metal and the resin and all that stuff is made in the building. Amazing. So when COVID came along and the building got shut down, those of us who write words were fine. Like yeah. I worked from home for, for months but we couldn't make models from home. Yeah. So we started talking about a role-playing game. And so I got to, at the end of my time there, lead the project for the Iron Kingdom's Requiem Rebirth RPG. Awesome. Um, which was a lot of fun. I, I love, I, I didn't play, of course, the RPG back when it launched because I was way into miniatures games. But I, have, I had played around with it off and on over the years, especially working there for the, the second edition, technically, of the game. But it was a lot of fun to take all the things I was having fun with in 5e during COVID times and turn that into stuff. 
So how, and obviously we could do a whole podcast on this. We'll keep it short, but how different is it? Like how hard was that transition to, from mini games to RPG? So it, it's, it wasn't hard for me because like I said way earlier, I don't even know how long ago, uh, to me, this, this job is really problem solving. Like I have a, I have a personal love and wealth of knowledge making and playing miniatures games because I've been doing it literally for more than half my life at this point. But any game design is really, how do I make this feel like it's supposed to feel with this rule set and these tools? And so it helped that I started playing 5e. I played one game of 5e like two years ago. And we started a D&D group during the beginning of COVID for just a reason to hang out with some people. Me and Dallas and, and Matt Getz and a few other people, Doug Seacat, we're just like, we had one kind of after work, happy hour Zoom call, like, you know, everyone was doing back in March and April. And then we were all sitting around talking because we hadn't talked for a couple of months. And we said, I don't think we, we want to do this, but we could play an RPG while we're doing this instead. And that would be, you know, that would be what we we're gamers, like just hanging out and talking is not much different from hanging out and talking about swinging swords and shooting spells and stuff. So I, we started a D and D fifth edition game. And then the conversation became at work. What can we work on that doesn't involve physical production? And that was the RPG and the easiest way to do the RPG. And the thing that a lot of us wanted to do was to bring it to fifth edition D and D. Cause if anybody doesn't know third edition D and D is where the iron kingdoms got its start. And I, I had I the old, that. I had the old monster Nomicon and that kind of stuff from the old D and D books. No kidding. While I was a war machine fan, just to read backstory and stuff. Yeah. And so it, there's a lot of people that complained about that decision because they love the second edition, the, the built on the war machine dice version of the game. And for various reasons that that edition of the game ended. Um, but this this thing, Requiem, is kind of the Iron Kingdom's getting back to its true roots of being a D&D setting again. That's cool. And to me, I didn't write a lot of it because Matt Getz and Hungerford wrote most of it. I was the project lead, which meant I wrote bits of it and I organized like what was going to be in the Monsteronomicon and, and who was going to get contracted to do what right. and all that kind of stuff and page counts and, and you know paying artists and that kind of stuff. But I did write the, uh, the human entry. And a few other things. So if you hate the way that the IK humans work, that's my <laughs> fault. Um, I also, uh, Getz and I collaborated a lot on it, but I was the one that insisted on the essence system because it's funny. We got complaints of, from playtesters even of people who are like, Dungeons and Dragons does this this way. Why don't you just do it that way? But there's a thing called the open gaming license that says, this small percentage of D&D is what you have access to. And Tasha's Cauldron of Everything had been announced and they had said there's going to be a new way to make your character that kind of takes race and racial ideas that are problematic out of the game. And, and this was announced as we were making our game and we did not know when Tasha's would come out. We did not know what they would do with it. And I was already of the opinion that we should do something with our thing, regardless of what they're going to do, just to just to be a part of that conversation of making yep. race in RPGs less of a thing that's bad. Um, so we created the Essence system, which is very similar to the last edition's uh, system of mighty, gifted, skillful, that kind of stuff. 
Um, and we kept races in the game, but we said, if you don't want to use races, you can also use this other thing that tacks on top of it and gives you more flexibility and makes yep. it so that you're not always a strong guy because you're a trollkin and always a smart guy because you're an elf and that kind of stuff. But it was it was really interesting and a lot of fun. And then I left right as, <laughs> yeah. right as it was finishing. Um, the playtesting was started and the writing on the adventure had just been contracted. And I was like, I have another idea. I'm going to go away now. So where did we go? So, uh, like I said, I think to you before we started, uh, a couple of friends of mine that used to work at Privateer Press, uh, one of which it was a guy in the back that no one ever probably met unless they were at Lock and Load. But another one of them was Michael Jenkins, one of the sculptors that worked there for a couple of years. They got this job at this very small company called Level 52 Studios that is just on the south side of Seattle. Um, and they started in 2015 doing collectibles, mostly statues. So... Like they've done destiny statues and stuff like that. And at when they hired, especially my production friend from privateer conversations started about adding miniatures because miniatures are just smaller statues, really. Right. But, uh, and COVID was happening and, you know, people don't necessarily want to buy a $600 statue of Iron Man when they have problems. But the fun thing about miniatures is if you buy a $20 miniature and you paint it, that's, that's the fun right there. And then there's all the fun of playing it and stuff. And, you, and it's a toy you're going to have for the rest of your life. So like the good thing about, about financial problems is that they don't hit the gaming industry quite as hard as they hit everybody else because the thing you're buying is an investment in fun for the rest of your life. Your, your joy per dollar is really high. You're not paying $15 <laughs> to go see a movie for two hours. Exactly. You're paying $15 to have a toy for the rest of your life that maybe your kids will play with 100 years from now or whatever. So they were like, well, we, we want to start making miniatures games. And um, they started having conversations about how do you do that? And my friend was like, well, I know a guy who's, who's made a couple of games. And then we started a conversation of what do they want to do? What's their time frames? That kind of stuff. And eventually it just became a, uh, there's still things I could have accomplished at Privateer. Yep. But, but there was, a chance to do something completely new and not to be egotistical, but also to have a massive amount of control over it. Right. Like, right. Well, there's stages in your career. Well, and you were ready for something and the same way that you left Steve Jackson, right? Like you, 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 you'd hit a ceiling at Steve Jackson. You start feeling some frustration. So you go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, now you have an opportunity that allows you to break through and, and push. So there's nothing to apologize for there. Jesus. Yeah. Well, I mean, my, I have an awful lot of imposter syndrome, so I tend, so, so I tend I, to apologize so. for that kind of stuff <laughs> yeah. a lot. So um, if you're unfamiliar with the name, we're also Broken Anvil Miniatures. So we kind of have a side sort of brand that's the miniatures and we just did a kickstarter back in february i believe for uh some frog people and mouse people and stuff it was called dungeon delvers those are beautiful by the way yeah and uh and we've got new stuff coming that i'm not going to talk about just <laughs> yet. um if you follow us on instagram at i believe broken anvil miniatures you can see some of the miniatures that are for the game i'm currently working on Excellent. It has a name, but I'm not going to say it because it might change and I don't know, whatever. It's like a very placeholder name. And we've put that tag into the thing, but who knows? Um, and we were even selling some of those miniatures at a larger scale because there was a lot of conversation about scale. Yep. And um, Marvel Crisis Protocol being at 40 millimeter scale was part of that conversation, but they're 40 millimeter true scale because of partially, as I understand it, having known those guys, but not been in those conversations, partially because train scenery exists 
and train sceneries at that scale. So you can get an actual Taco Bell for Iron Man to punch crossbones yeah. through. No, it's perfect the way they scaled it. So uh, these guys were talking about maybe doing 40-ish millimeters, but I was like, eh, I don't know about that. So we scaled it down some. And um, if anybody has any of those miniatures, now they're even more rare because they're like the big <laughs> giant ones. And we're going to kind of redo them a little bit for the smaller scale. But they're not going to become teeny tiny, teeny tiny anybody things. It's still going to be like a biggish scale. You made a huge mistake now because now I've got a reason to get you back on the show. Oh, so, of course. So as, as, as this starts to break open and we can start having these conversations, yeah. we'll have you come back on because I know there's a lot of people listening that would be like are dying to hear more about this. So when we're in a position to do that, you know where I am um, and we'll have you I mean, back I, on. I, I've already, I also tossed out three or four other reasons to have me on that are not product related in any way. <laughs> so when you go back and listen to this while you're editing, you can just take notes of the next five appearances I'm going to make well, on the show. You're going to, you're going to make the same mistake that Perkins did because Perkins is like part of my stable now. Like when I want to talk about a subject that's not Pacific, I might have to uh, add you to my stable. <laughs> it was funny. I left Privateer and Privateer was very, I don't want to say controlling, but they were very careful with media. Yeah. Um, and there was also sometimes when things fell through the cracks, like I, I would get an email from somebody and they would say, hey, can you come on my podcast? And I would say, yes, but marketing has to approve it. And then it would like get lost in the email chains. Yeah. And then that the topic would be dead by the time people figured it out. So it's funny that you told me earlier that somebody had suggested bringing me on because as soon as I left Privateer, I changed my Twitter bio information to be I want to be on your podcast. I saw Even that. if we don't talk about gaming. Because philosophical conversations about all kinds of bigger things are one of my other side hobbies. Um, so I will be on any time as long as my schedule permits in well, general. Uh, so. As you found out, uh, we schedule pretty far ahead here on the third floor. So that's good. So before we wrap up, though, um, and we've kind of touched on it a little bit here with Arena Rex and we talked a little bit about 5e and stuff. I'm always curious to know what creators are playing that's not theirs. So where are you finding joy outside of making? Well, it's weird, and I don't know how many other people you've talked to about this specifically, but it is completely different to try to have fun playing something you made. Oh, I've had it that is, conversation several it times. Is, yeah. It is like cooking. Like, yes. you know what went in. Yep. You know that, oh, that thing fell on the ta- the floor, and I got most of it back and put it in the pot, and no <laughs> yeah. one knows that but me. Um, so, like, I, I enjoy playing my games, but playing my games is kind of like reviewing my homework to a certain extent. Unless I'm running it and showing it to new people, then and finding joy through them. Then, yeah. Then I really, I like that imposter syndrome thing. Also, I'm like being like, oh, I wish I could have changed that. And part of the other joy of game designing is you're, you're almost always echoing something and like fixing, yeah. like, I wish I would have done this, like yep. making Omega Protocol and the um, Iron Kingdom's adventure board game series, Undercity and Witterswood and stuff. I really wish that Privateer would have let me smash those two things together on like a different license, like getting the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles license or something and like taking the best things from those two games and making something else yep. would have been really fun. Um, so I, I am also um, not a lifestyle gamer. I'm a Mayfly like Omni gamer when it comes to that. I don't play a lot of board games and stuff these days, not only because of COVID, Partially because when I started playing and making more miniatures games at Privateer, I just kind of started like my hobby reverted back to my teenage hobby of I mostly play miniatures games. Um, But Arena Rex is still my favorite game. I still haven't played it, man. And the people I respect tell me it's such a good game. Those guys haven't done it yet. Those guys are friends of mine. So that also colors that opinion a little bit. Like when I first moved to Austin, Texas to work at Steve Jackson Games, 
one of the first things I did after work was go to the game store on War Machine night to try and meet people. And yeah. and Walker and Nick uh, were were two of those people I met in in those years there that are really good friends of mine still. So it was really awesome when I found out they were going to kickstart a game, and it turned out to be one of my favorite games. But it does it does things that are really interesting with resources and activation that, yeah. mechanics and all kinds of stuff, and it influenced Guild Ball and other yep. other games that like it was, it's a huge game. It's yeah. a huge game in that respect. Yeah. Um, it's just, and they, I, and as far as I know, they're doing okay with it, but it's not like in game stores and it's not nope. like massively out there in the world, but everybody should try it. And they make, they make amazing, awesome miniatures. The miniatures are gorgeous. Um, I have also in the last couple of years gotten really into Relic Blade, Sean Sutter's game. That, I've got uh, Mr. Sutter coming on the show. Yep. Uh, I really like Sean. We've hung out at a couple of mostly one Adepticon. But I also went down to Kingdom Con a couple of years ago, the last Kingdom Con, and hung out with Sean. And um, me and him and Pagani and another guy played a four-player crazy dungeon crawl version of Relic Blade that was really awesome. Um, and, and I really, I have a ton of respect for Sean because he does everything himself. All of it. He That's what's insane it. about Sean. He, started, he, he was a comic book artist first. And then he taught himself to sculpt and to make a game and he does everything himself except editing and a few other things yeah, like that. It's insane. And it's just, it's awesome because he's living the dream that yeah. I can, that I don't have enough confidence <laughs> to live. Like I need someone to pay my paycheck uh, really funny. bad. Just like <laughs> psychologically, like I can't, I couldn't be like, I'm going to just do this and it's going to work. Um, I also, uh, I rediscovered my enjoyment for, for games workshop stuff when age of Sigmar That's launched. Great. And like I said, we can have a long conversation about how much I love that first year of Age of Sigmar and how everybody else hates it. Yeah. Uh, and that evolved slowly over time into me, like, forgiving Games Workshop for the trauma of my past. Look at that. That's nice. Um, and then that led to me having a 40K army again when they did 8th edition. Because 8th edition is a throwback to 2nd edition, which yep. was the last edition of 40K I loved and yep. played. And so, th like, that's the other thing that's interesting about my age and all that is, like, I know lots of people who were who were in their 40s who quit playing right around the end of second edition and were suddenly like, you mean they brought everything back that I loved about 40K? That's what I hear. So I have a Death Guard army up there that I wouldn't own except suddenly Games Workshop was like, how about second edition kind of again? Yeah. But the game of theirs I love and I, I play every chance I can get. And I played a lot in 2019 before COVID. It was the game I probably played the most and it's Warcry. Because Warcry is interesting, is not perfect, um, right. but it's so easy. It's so simple to grab. It's it's so simple to to play. Like it doesn't. It's not hard. Like yeah. if you have any understanding of how the dice mechanics in 40k or or fantasy traditionally work, you understand. Like the thing that I love, the the jealousy in my brain of like, oh, I wish I would have thought of that. Is that somebody who made Warcry? was like, we have this system where you roll to attack, you roll to wound, you roll to save. How about if we just drop the saving part and the attacking part, and we just do the middle part that matters the most, and then just, just did you miss? Well, then you didn't hit him hard enough. Yeah. Did you murder him? Then you hit him really hard. Yeah. Um, and it still has that, it has that thing, because in my brain, I always lean toward resource mechanic systems, and the initiative dice, mm -hmm. pairs and quads and stuff, that is the, the thing that grabs me, it's an interesting mechanic. And then nothing else gets in the way of the fun because it's just like move a guy, roll some dice. Like nobody has special rules, which I don't always like in games. But in Warcry, it all just works out. And 
I have a bunch of corn guys and a bunch of Skaven and a bunch of it's that kill team idea of armies you have work in this game and armies you don't have yet. You only have to buy a little bit of. So Warcry is probably the game I have played or tried to play the most in the last like two years since it came out. Well, and for those listening, we've got a hard stop here on this interview because you're about to go jump in and uh, do a little RPG. And I'm going to play Lancer, which most people haven't heard of. I, well, you before we start recording, you're like, yeah, Craig, I got a hard stop because I'm going to play Lancer. And I'm like, I know what those words mean, but not together. Yeah. I'm like, what is so, Lancer? So um, let's talk about Lancer real quick. So Lancer, uh, I don't know who makes it. I can't remember the name of the company that makes it. Uh, a, a, a version of the rule book is available for free. It is a large chunk of the rule book. It's like 300 pages. It's not all the DM stuff. Right. But it's completely for free. You can play it for free. And there's this, this website called CompCon, C-O-M-P-C-O-N. It's a character sheet management system where you can build mechs in it. It, it knows all the rules of building models. Nice. It's like an army construction system. Mm-hmm. And it also, it's also your character sheet while you play. You can nice. export JSONs and give them to your DM and he can have your character sheets in front of him. It's it's ridiculously fun and cool, and it's a big mecha game, and it, it shares some stuff with Shadow of the Demon Lord and some other games that yep. I like a lot. Um, it's not perfect because all game no games are perfect, but, but it's a fun. game about sci-fi mecha combat. And then the other thing I'm doing right now is playing in two different D and D games. I'm running one. Wow. Um, which I've never done before in my entire life. I played I played a decent amount of third edition. I played that one horrible failure of a of a first edition, second edition game, whatever that was. Um, in third edition, I had a chance because my wife worked nights and I was bored just to play D&D for the first time in my life. And um, all of the satanic panic craziness kind of came true. Like I played with literal pagans, people that okay. were Wiccan, like <laughs> the worshipers. And it was hilarious because they were the nicest people in the entire world. <laughs> and like, they didn't try to convince me their religion was important in any way. <laughs> the most Christian unchristians you've ever met. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I played a little bit of third edition and had fun with it. And then like, I, I never could devote time to RPGs because I'd rather be playing miniatures games or whatever. But COVID was like, stay at your house, do something. And of course, you know, Chatting on the internet is possible and it's yeah. how you played anything. So we started a D&D group a while ago. Some of my friends, all former private press employees, basically. Um, and so I've been playing in that group for months. And then some other friends of mine, which were mostly former private press employees, also said, hey, let's start a, a D&D game. And I'm like, well, I'm playing one, but that's only on Sundays for a couple hours. So I could do something every other Saturday. And we played a little bit. We tried Ravenloft, but one of my friend, the friend running it, got too overwhelmed with real life to try and decipher the yeah. first the first edition of Ravenloft because it's a little bit convoluted. So um, I had been building in Tabletop Simulator the essentials and the starter box for D&D just in case I had to test the IK RPG thing. Interesting. I wanted I wanted like entry level kind of things. Yeah that had maps and that had all the encounter stuff that I could swap IK monsters into, or I could put IK heroes into and fight bugbears and goblins and stuff yep. just to test all that stuff. And then I ended up never using it, but I built that entire gigantic thing. And my friends were like, well, we still want to play D and D, but, but who wants to run it? And I'm like, well, I've got this giant hex crawl <laughs> campaign built out a hundred percent in tabletop simulator. Isn't that something? So I guess I'll run it. And my friends are very forgiving and I, I, I have enough of a game designer brain that I can kind of pick up on things quickly. And I've played enough D and D recently. I still sure. look in the books, but the books are right there on the shelf that you That's can see cool. behind me. 
So, are yeah. you enjoying being a GM? I, or DM? I am. I am. Um, but I, and I don't suffer from the Matt Mercer effect at all because <laughs> I already have enough of a stage fright thing to not try to do voices. Right. Like I do voices in my personal life when I'm talking to myself, but I, <laughs> but I don't, I don't feel like I need to inflict my terrible accents on my friends. <laughs> sure. So I run it kind of like Diablo. Like right. these are your these are your conversation choices. Which ones do you click on <laughs> effectively? And then here's a dungeon with some monsters in it. Let's roll some dice. So it's 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 very light on the narrative and very heavy on the like hex crawl. Which of the dungeons are you going to come across in the woods? Yeah. Um, but it's it's been a lot of fun, and it's it's also been a ton of fun playing just as a character in in a regular D and D game. And it's been a, a crazy amount of fun running around in space as a mecha pilot blowing up crazy crazy things that's fantastic man that's fantastic but cool. and i have covid to thank for all that because i wouldn't <laughs> probably be playing as much if any rpgs well, that's if it the wasn't same thing happened to me man same thing happened to me house. i was all mini games i gave up rpgs for 20 years and then covid hit and i'm like well i can't pick up any models so i'm gonna go back to rpgs and i'm tickled that i did um i've been having a ton of fun with that and it's uh it's brought me all kinds of joy well well what, what a good time man i really appreciate you taking some time to come yeah. see us yeah it's uh, I was really glad that you poked me and asked me to come on. Um, and like I said, anytime that my schedule is available and you I will I will be bothering you again. You want to record something to to air six or eight months later. You just, <laughs> you just let me know. <laughs> so I'm recording now for 2023. Um, yeah. So if uh, for those people that want to learn uh, more about uh, Broken Anvil, where should they go? So Broken Anvil um, Miniatures dot com is basically a web store right now. Uh, and it only has, I think. I don't think anything's technically available on that site right now. Okay. Um, but that's the site to watch. You can, you can search for Dungeon Delvers on Kickstarter, and we're still doing updates on that. We just put up late pledges for that this week. Nice. So if you want to get in on frog people and mouse people and stuff and the wood dragon and some other things, uh, the, the late pledges, I don't know when we're going to close late pledges, but those are up. So we're about to fulfill STLs and then start production on the real miniatures and stuff. Because that was another thing we did for that. We didn't do just an STL Kickstarter or just a regular model Kickstarter. We did yep. STLs and then models on top of it That's that you're going to get. That's the best. Yeah. That's the best. And we've got other stuff. Um, Instagram is our main. Broken Anvil Miniatures on Instagram is our main social media, but we do have Great. a Facebook page and some other stuff like that. And and like I said earlier, right now there's almost nothing, but we have a bunch of big plans and 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 things that I will probably be able to talk about in a couple of months in a real way that isn't just promising things that might not be real. (laughs) Okay. That sounds good. Well, uh, well, like I said, we'll have you on again and I'm going to have a link to all of that in the show notes. And uh, for those of you that stuck around to the end, thanks for listening. Take care. Hey, did you hear that? You leveled up. You finished another episode of tabletop talk from third floor wars. If you want more from the third floor, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Head on over to our YouTube channel. It is packed with painting tutorials, gaming tips, battle reports, and role-playing actual plays. Did you enjoy this episode? Why don't you send a link to one of your friends so they can enjoy it too? Last but not least, write us a review on your podcatcher of choice. This helps us find listeners almost as cool as you. Excellent segment, my friend. Excellent yeah. segment. That's that's a drum I will always beat because I want everyone to chill out. <laughs> no, it was that 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 
that is a perfect example of what we were talking about the other break, which is I, let's see where the conversation goes. Yeah. I had yeah. no plan on having that yeah. conversation with you. And that's probably the best segment of the episode. So I appreciate you going with going with I, me on that. People, somebody's going to complain about it, but I don't care. Well, yeah, it, it, it creates conversation. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Um, all right, cool. I'll bring us back. Um, so what would you like? Is there something in particular you want to make sure we focus on here? So I don't care. I mean, I can. I've mentioned that I worked on Monpoc, I think. Uh, it doesn't really matter. But that's what a lot of people know me for in the okay. recent past. Like Company of Iron was a big splash, but then I got given Monpoc. And that was okay. what I did the last couple of years I was there. So people know Monpoc. So let's start there. Yeah. Um, and then after, after Monster Apocalypse, where do you want to go? We can talk about Broken Anvil, the company I work for now. Um, we don't have anything much to talk about. but Well, that makes we it exciting, actually. Talk about so. the future, and then, yeah, yeah, we can wrap up with other things. That sounds great. All right, I'll bring us back with Monster Apocalypse. Perfect, my friend. Perfect, yeah. perfect, perfect. I appreciate you just settling into the conversational oh, nature I, of things, man. I like to talk, and I and I I hate it. I had one bad interview on a podcast because the guy sent me a list of questions, and then he just read those questions to me. And I would feed him, like, transitions, yeah. and then he would read the next question. And so it was like, we could be having a conversation, but I'm just filling out a survey and it wasn't uh, I, I, a bad overall, but it was it was disappointing because of that. Well, it, well, it, it's a missed opportunity is yeah. what it is. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, it um, I've had I've gone through different cycles where I've gotten very prescriptive about my interviews mm -hmm. and, and, and where I found kind of a sweet spot, which is let, let, like, here's kind of what I want to talk about. And then yeah. wherever we go, we go. And me as the host, if things get boring or go off, then it's my job to bring it back. Right. Yeah. But the sooner it's just, you know, two people just talking games, it's, they mm -hmm. tend to be my best episodes. Uh, which is exactly what's happening here. So I appreciate that. Cool. All right. So I'll bring us back with Company of Iron. Um, I'd be curious, Will, when did you transition to actually courting? Oh, shit. My daughter's Alexa. No problem. <laughs> when was the transition, Will? So when did you first... Um, so, well, and you know what else is cool? And this is true of tabletop industry and the RPG industry is, is it's not only that, but we're very generous, right? Yeah, like, yeah. like, uh, and, and you know, I say, you know, like people invite me on their podcast. I'm like, sure, let's do it. Let's, let's talk. Let's have yeah. fun. And, and I'm glad that, you know, as you go up, like I just booked Monty Cook, uh, D and D yeah. Monty Cook mm -hmm. and, um, you know, and Steve Jackson and stuff like that. So I was waiting, for, I'm, I'm waiting to hit the ceiling. I'm waiting for someone to go, who the fuck are you? Yeah. Um, and it hasn't happened yet, which is pretty incredible. Um, but it's a tribute, I think, to the community aspect of our hobby. You know yeah. what I'm saying? All right, cool. I'll bring us back. Hey, are you still here? Look, uh, the podcast is over. And you sat through all of the breaks and bloopers? Well, I mean, if you're here, you might as well run over to Patreon.com and become a supporter. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast, too, while you're at it, on whatever platform you're listening to. I do appreciate you sticking around. Take care.